welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, episode 6 is going to be covering uh, November 11th, 1939 through January 2nd, 1940. Cover date, February 1940. Uh, and the issues that we're going to be covering are Superman number 3, Action Comics number 20, Detective Comics number 35, Adventure Comics number 46, Flash Comics number 2, Action Comics number 21, and More Fun Comics number 52. That's right. After a one-episode dip into More Fun Comics with the last issue of Dr. Occult for decades, we're going to be dipping back in with a little mm, little ghost, little spooky uh, Vengeance of God. Uh, God's Wrath. So... But we'll get to that one at the end, obviously. It's a nice little finale, a little closer. But let's set the scene for when these comics were being released. November 21st, 1939, the British government declared a blockade of German exports and reprisal for numerous incidents at sea. At this point, the German U-boats, uh, submarines, were you know, sinking so many different British ships that were carrying munitions, regular non-war related material to other places uh similar to how the lusitania was sunk during world war one and other you know non-war based uh sea traffic was hindered by german u-boat activity this time they are blockading germany's coastline in order to stop this from happening as much and, and have a more control over the u-boats uh and their effectiveness in the war November 26th, the shelling of Manila, not Manila in the Philippines, but Manila in Russia, in, in, this, in the Soviet Union. So this is actually um, a false flag operation that the Soviet Union Red Army did. It, it shelled its own village, its own Russian village of Manila, uh, and then claimed that the fire actually originated from Finland, and they used this as a, a casus belli. Uh, which is, you know, basically a reason for war. And this began what's known as the Winter War or the First Russo-Finnish War. About, you know, uh, four days later, on December 1st, the Soviet Union created the Finnish Democratic Republic, uh, a puppet state operating in Soviet-occupied parts of Finland. This is very similar to uh, Vichy France, which is um, a government that was friendly to the Nazis, which we'll get to later as the war progresses and France's regular government falls to uh, Nazi occupation. December 15th, the epic historical romance film Gone with the Wind, starring Vivian Leigh, Clark Gable, Olivia de Havilland, and Leslie Howard premiered at Lowe's Grand Theater in Atlanta. It's based on Margaret Mitchell's best-selling novel of 1963 of the same name, uh, it's the longest American film made up to this point. Uh, it's almost four hours long. I remember my mom would just pick a random Saturday and she would spend like a good portion of the afternoon just watching this thing because it takes, it takes you know, you got to set time aside in order to watch this thing. It is very, very long. It came, came on two uh, VHS tapes because that's how long it was. December 27th, the Erzincan earthquake shakes eastern Turkey with a Maximum Mercalli intensity of extreme. It's an it's a 7.8. Uh, more than 32,000 people were killed and about 100,000 were injured. Now, the Mercalli intensity is a different way to uh, measure earthquakes. It's more about feel 
and, and less about just like a number like on the Richter scale. So extreme, like you can feel it extremely, like it goes all the way down to not felt at all. So that's just the way that that is measured. Uh, January 2nd, the Irish government introduced emergency powers to incarcerate members of the Irish Republican Army without trial, the IRA. Uh, this is this is the very famous fight that the uh, IRA does against the British government and the Irish government in Northern Ireland and Ireland in general. That it caused a lot of deaths and, and um, is still felt today in, in parts of Ireland uh, and the United Kingdom. Uh, also on January 2nd, Adolf Hitler's traditional New Year's reception of the diplomatic corps in the Reich Chancellery was canceled due to the war. Obviously, don't really need a diplomatic corps when literally every country... Not literally every country, Nick. That's hyperbole. Most of the countries on Earth do not like you. Didn't feel the need. Didn't want to... And Adolf Hitler hates giving speeches. So he's just like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So yeah, that's that's what's happening around the time that these issues are being published. Uh, now let's get into the good stuff. And the first issue in our good stuff is Superman number 3. Released November 15th, 1939, with a cover date of winter 1940, as it is a quarterly release rather than a monthly one, as all of our other issues are. Uh, no debuts in this one. It is uh, one of those early Supermans where uh, a few of the stories are reprints of Action Comics stories, so we won't be covering those. I'll mention what they are. It is uh, the, the Valley Ho Dam breaking story. And the uh, fake manager of Superman who is selling the rights to Superman's image and stuff for advertising that we've covered in previous episodes. Uh, so no need to rehash what has already been hashed. I should mention, obviously, the authors of this issue of Superman and the stories in it are uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, of course, but also Dennis Neville. Uh, I believe he is the author, not the author, the artist uh, in for the newspaper strip stories that were being printed in the newspapers before they were being printed in the Superman anthology issues. So let's get into the first story, which has Superman dealing with uh, an orphanage. And this is a whopping 24 page long story, which is like as long as modern day comics are today, which makes me wonder how were they printed in newspapers? Were they printed a page at a time, like a page every day or cause like 24 pages of panels that would take up a lot of space in a newspaper. That is something that I, as, as the host of this show should look into. I think I will be doing that uh, for uh, the next time this comes up. Uh, although after this, It'll be all original stories rather than reprints from the newspaper and action comics. So uh, the first story, we we open up on a small boy. He is uh, crawling out of a window uh, of the state orphanage's dormitory. He looks he looks kind of like Dennis the Menace, uh, and that's not just because one of his name his last name is Dennis. Uh, he does just. He looks like Dennis the Menace. And also Tintin, like a combo of Tintin and Dennis the Menace. And he is escaping. He's got a little hobo bindle. And he's he's running away because he, he doesn't like to be in the orphanage. We then see him a couple days later. And he is walking on the train tracks, which is dangerous. Don't do that. Uh, and he collapses from hunger. Uh, luckily, a nerdy-looking man named Clark Kent was walking in the countryside, as he is wont to do. And sees the boy collapsed on the railroad tracks. He, of course, 
is secretly Superman. Uh, so he takes off his suit and underneath his Superman costume, and he races an oncoming train. Uh, the boy must have been really, really far away because he is running for quite a few panels. Uh, so that's interesting. He gets to the boy in time and uh, jumps over the train rather than doing what he will do in the future, which is just stopping dead in his tracks uh, and, and destroying the train. So he, he doesn't like to destroy property. He says that in this issue, even though we know he loves to destroy property. Uh, everyone on the train is just amazed with the skill of the save, and uh, we jump sort of through time and distance to when the boy is waking up, and Clark Kent has put back on his clothes, and is Clark Kent again, rather than Superman. The boy informs him that he hasn't eaten in two days. Uh, so they go to a lunch spot. It, it says lunch on the window, so we know it's the middle of the day, and they're eating lunch. Uh, the boy looks like he's eating an entire plate of mashed potatoes, and also has a plate of pancakes. That's a lot of carbs. Maybe want to have a better rounded diet. Clark wants to ask him a few questions, but the boy wants to like leave. He wants to get out of there. He says, thanks for the food, and I'm going to leave now. Clark says, you know, hey, what's your name? He says, Frankie, Frankie Dennis. And he's asking him where he lives, and the boy gets like really like uh, sort of defensive and says, I don't got a home. Would, would you call a home a place where the superintendent beats and starves and slave, slave drives you home? And he doesn't want to go back. He won't go back to the state orphanage. Clark is suspicious of this. He's like, well, why not? You know, in his mind, he says this, there might be a story here. He asks Frankie what they do to him at the orphanage. They get food not fit to eat. They get hired out for hard labor. They get beaten. They have to scrub the floors for hours and hours. And uh, Clark doesn't like that. He says this is a nasty state of affairs. But he's not sure whether or not Frankie's telling the truth. Because, uh, I mean, kids are kids. And uh, they'll make up stories. But he, Frankie is, is swears that he is telling the truth. So Clark has an idea. He wants Frankie to go back to the orphanage. Uh, to be an inside man and give Clark the scoop, the skinny, if you will, uh, about what's going on in the orphanage. Frankie is terrified of doing that. Uh, obviously, it's a very, very traumatic situation in the orphanage. And uh, if I was him, I wouldn't want to go back. Uh, I agree with him. That's not a place that I would want to go ever again if I was beaten and put into hard labor against my will. But Clark kind of, I guess, doesn't guilt him into it, but like helps him to see that what he's doing is for the greater good you know he doesn't want to abandon his friends in the orphanage and you know just for his freedom so he agrees and he gets sent back to the orphanage and we cut to the orphanage and clark is there with frankie and they open the door and the superintendent comes out uh mr lyman and he's about to smack frankie right across the face calls him a blasted little runaway uh, but Clark's there, and he says, take that your hands off that boy. You know, first, first, Lyman is all like, hey, what, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? But then Clark is like, I'm reporter Kent. And Lyman quickly, you know, changes his tune because it's like, oh, gosh, this guy could ruin me uh, if, if he writes a story about it. And he brushes it off as, as it being like he's just not happy that he ran away and, and that his, his kindness is repaid with, with running away. He doesn't like that. He says he loves his little charges, but he was worried to death when Frankie ran away. Clark pretends to believe him. So then Clark leaves, and Frankie, you know, is back undercover. He is he is an, he's a secret double agent. 
Clark leaves kind of on the fence about whether or not Frankie was lying, but he also doesn't think that Lyman is a very good guy. So he's leaning towards more that Frankie's telling the truth. Uh, Lyman is kind of like interrogating Frankie, you know, tell me what you told to that reporter or quote, I'll smash that pasty face of yours. This is a kid, dude. Like you're, you are, you know, four times his size and weight. Like just calm down. Uh, Frankie, you know, says he didn't tell him anything. Obviously that's not true, but he's a double agent now, so he can lie. It's fine. Uh, we now go back to, uh, Clark at the Daily Star. He's trying to get Lois to go on a date with him as per usual. She says, not interested. And then he says, oh, come on. I'm not Poison Ivy. And for a second, I thought, whoa, wait a minute. But I forgot that Poison Ivy is also just a regular plant that exists in real life. I, I, I forgot that. But yeah, he's not referencing Poison Ivy. It is going to be a while until she comes around. Lois lets him lets him have it. Says for once and for once and all, will you please let it register in that thick dome of yours that I dislike dislike you heartily, dislike you heartily. Ooh, it stings so badly. Uh, then the editor in chief, George Taylor, wants to see Clark. He's got an assignment for him, and this is this is one of the times in this where you can tell that it was written way earlier than you know, where we actually are in, say, like, action comics and stuff, because Superman is just referred to as uh, an unknown man. So, because George says, you know that spectacular rescue by an unknown man of the runaway from the state orphanage? Um, How do they know that? How do they know that? How does George know that? That he was a runaway from the state orphanage? How does he know that? That is weird. That That didn't click when I read it the first time. That is weird that he knows that. Hmm. Okay, but uh, he wants to put Clark on that story, and Clark also says, "You know what? I'm I'm a little bit. I've got a hunch about the conditions at that institution. I wanna I wanna check it out. Can you have Lois come with me to help me cover it?" Uh, and George, being a pushover and just letting Clark do whatever he wants, says, "Sounds swell." And Clark is thinking in his mind, "What a break! Ho ho! She'll have to she'll have to bear my company now, whether she wants to or not." Hey Clark, hey Clark. She doesn't like you. Like, playing hard to get is not a thing. Uh, Unless it is. But most of the time, it's not a thing. If a woman tells you she doesn't like you, she doesn't like you. Don't force her to have to hang out with you uh, through a fake, like, need at your job. It's pretty scummy. So him and Lois have to work together. And in a panel, Lois says, I'm going with you only because I'm forced to, and don't you forget it. And then Clark says, what difference does does that make as long as we're alone? Clark... That's really, really scummy. And it, it skeeves me out that you're saying these things to Lois. <sighs> but as they are on their way to get a cab or something to go to the orphanage, they are kind of met by some other reporters from rival papers. And this part is so weird. It, it feels a lot like filler. They're just like, hey, you know, got any stories? Got any stories? Go find your own, you lazy piles. Like... Clark is the only reporter who can find a story, so you just gotta, like, latch on to him? Like, go do your job, my guy. Ugh. So, you know, Clark says, ah, nah, it's just, you know, nothing. And they get in a cab, and they drive away, and they're like, ah, oh, we got we got rid of him. Just kidding, they're in another cab right behind you. And Lois and Clark pay their cabbie an extra five spot, five dollars, uh, to lose them. And the way he tries to lose them is to do a a sharp turn into an alley 
Like, they couldn't also do the turn. But uh, they lose them, quote-unquote. And then they head to the orphanage. And as Lois and Clark are getting ready, they're like, okay, now remember, you got to act natural and pretend like we don't suspect anything. And Lois is, you know, kind of prematurely gloating, like, haha, I can't wait till those other reporters see our scoop about the bad conditions at this orphanage in, in the paper. And, oh, who's that right behind you? It's the other reporters. They actually did still follow you. Maybe they made that sharp turn into that alley. So they, you know, they now know that the story is involving the state orphanage, uh, but Clark brushes it off as it just being like a boring feature, you know? They don't believe him, of course, because never trust a rival reporter. They will just completely lie to you uh, because, you know, their entire job is based around the fact of them getting the story before anybody else. So they're ringing the doorbell, and Lyman is not coming to the door, and he he's running through the orphanage telling the kids to go, you know, start playing and acting like normal children at an orphanage instead of, you know, indentured servants uh, or, or slaves. Uh, so stop, like, cleaning and repairing things or whatever and go play games. And also he threatens them that if they say anything about how it actually is, they're going to be severely punished because this man loves to beat children. Uh, he finally gets to the door and he says, oh, sorry, I was filling out reports. And Clark's like, they must have been the most interesting reports because we've been ringing this bell for five minutes. Could you just imagine the bell going off for five minutes and not coming to the door? Uh, so they, you know, they take a look around and he's like, yeah, I'll be pleased to show you around. Just, you know, follow me. Uh, so Clark and Lois are trying to figure out how to do their investigation while all these reporters are around and Lyman is following them around as well. Uh, they show him, they show them all the scenes of the, the children playing and they're having a great time. Uh, he says he loves them as they, as though they were my own children. That doesn't mean that you love them. There's lots of parents out there who don't love their children. Come on, dude. Think a little bit. Uh, but he's like, haha, these stupid reporters, I'm so good at this. Uh, Lois, is, Lois talks to a little girl. She's like, oh, yeah, do you like it here? And he says, uh, she says, yeah, I like it fine. Mr. Lyman's very good to us. He never hits us or anything. Could you imagine that being the praise you get for your job? Yeah, we aren't beaten by the person taking care of us. It's a really good endorsement. Uh, just the bare minimum. Like, I don't put out my lit cigarettes on the children. Wow, good job. Thumbs up. Lois sees a bruise on this child's arm. She's like, how'd you get it? And she's like, uh, I, I fell. Like, she's a, a wife in a domestic abuse situation. And the doctor asks her how she broke her arm. She fell. Uh, Lois isn't quite sure. Could have been a fall, but also she thinks maybe she might have been struck. Obviously, we know she was. Uh, she she talks to a boy in bed, and sh and she's like, oh, why are you laying, Why are you sleeping in bed? And he's like, oh, I'm just tired from playing too much. She's like, are you sure there's no other reason? He's like, yep. But he's like, I don't dare tell her that I'm laid up from working too hard. Then our double agent, Frankie Dennis, comes out of a closet, does a little pss, pss for Clark uh, to get his attention, and he's about to tell him some stuff before Mr. Lyman comes up right behind them. So he stops what he's going to say. He says, I got nothing to tell you. And, and, he, and he runs away. So the visit is over and, and Lyman and all the reporters are like, yep, nothing to see here. Uh, but Clark's still wondering about Frankie. And then as they're leaving, the other reporters are like, yeah, this was a really boring thing, Clark. There was nothing. And he's like, yeah, that's what I told you. It's just a mediocre feature story. Then we see inside the uh, orphanage after the reporters are gone, and Lyman is dragging uh, Frankie 
by his sweater and locks him in the attic until he, quote-unquote, learns to keep that trap of yours shut. He's very mean to the kids, if you haven't noticed. So back at the Daily Star, Clark and Lois are in Taylor's office, and they're like, sorry, Taylor, uh, didn't dig up any info at the orphanage. And Taylor, finally growing a backbone, says, you didn't? Then from now on, keep your hunches to yourself. So good job, George. Finally, finally standing up to your reporters instead of just letting them do whatever they want. So back at the orphanage, you know, Lyman's back to his slave driving ways, just kind of yelling at the kids to work better and work harder. He's having the kids do what looks like either construction work or uh, chopping firewood. I don't think that like seven year olds or however old they are, they look like they can't be older than 10. I don't know if I would be allowing them to use an axe. I just feel like that's more you're more at risk of one of them like chopping off a foot or hitting someone with an axe on accident. So he's laughing, thinking that he fooled those stupid reporters. But Clark has now turned into Superman. So, you know, he's about to get it. And he jumps away to the orphanage and he's hiding outside the window like he does like a creepy guy all the time. He's poking his little head around and he sees Lyman reading over his financial books, which we all do from time to time. We love to look at our finances. Lyman is gloating about all the money he's making from grafting the books or cooking the books, basically. And we cut to Lois and she is in her nightgown and she cannot sleep because she is just racked with worry about the kids at the orphanage. Meanwhile, Frankie is in the attic and he is pounding on the door. He's saying, let me out. You got to let me out, please. And he like picks up a chair and like starts beating it against the wall and Lyman gets up and he says, I'll fix him. Uh, so while he's gone, Superman sneaks in through the window and he's reading the books and he steals the books and goes over to the Star Groceries Company because that's where Lyman purchases his food. So he's going to compare the finances of the grocery store and Lyman to see, you know, if there's any discrepancies. Meanwhile, Lois is, you know, she's put on her clothes and her coat and her hat and she is heading off to the orphanage because she's still she's still not sure and Lyman has got a whip and is is going to uh, start whipping Frankie meanwhile Clark or Superman sorry is uh, at the star grocery company he goes into the skylight doesn't break it just opens it nicely but then he does have to he does have to break the drawer of the filing cabinet and he says I dislike wrecking their equipment but it's necessary don't lie Superman I know this is written like way previously, so because he breaks a lot of stuff as we as we know, it's his third favorite thing to do uh, is is wreck property uh, of any kind. No no discrimination of what kind of property. He finds out that there is a discrepancy between the two books. Lyman is uh, basically writing down that he's spending way more on food than he is, so he can pocket that extra money. After finding this out, he rushes back to the orphanage because he's found out all he needs to kind of get Lyman his just desserts. Meanwhile, Lois is also doing a little B&E, a little breaking and entering uh, into the orphanage through the window. And she overhears the, the wails of Frankie Dennis being whipped mercilessly by Lyman. The other children at the orphanage also hear this, uh, waking them up from their sleep. And Lois, you know, busts into the attic and says, stop it. Lyman is angry. He pushes her out of the way and locks her in the attic with Frankie. 
and says, you'll never print that story. I'll kill you first. Which, I mean, he's already beating children and stealing money, so I guess murder's not that much worse. Uh, so, I mean, obviously beating children is worse than stealing money, but he's doing both, so added together, it's, it's, it's bad. And then murder is, you know, just a little step up. So luckily, he's he's saved up enough cash for a quick getaway. So uh, he's going to light the orphanage on fire, killing everybody, and making his escape, burning evidence. Uh, I guess, well, evidence being Lois and Frankie, even though the other children are allowed to escape because they run out into the cold night. Uh, the smoke is filling up the attic, and Lyman is rushing to his car. Superman returns to the scene and picks up Lyman's car and takes off the back wheels. Just the back wheels. Uh, must be a rear-wheel drive vehicle. Although <laughs> although a front-wheel drive vehicle probably wouldn't drive that well with only the front ones, too. So it doesn't really matter. As long as you remove two of the wheels, you should be good in stopping any car. And uh, you can take that to the bank. That's true. He does the Vulcan neck grip thingy. I'm not a Star Trek person. I'm so sorry. On Lyman and knocks him out that way. And meanwhile, Lois has passed out from the smoke and Frankie is, you know, busting through the window or attempting to. It's got bars on it. Superman jumps up there and grabs Lois and Frankie and brings them down. A little while later, Lois wakes up and asks what happened. Frankie says that Superman saved them. Then Clark, you know, comes over saying, Lois, thank goodness you're safe. Then the police come to arrest Lyman, and the re the report is printed in the newspaper. Frankie gets his picture in the paper. It says, Boy Hero. Uh, it just says superintendent over Lyman, not like scumbag superintendent or something. So still have to be polite in the newspaper, I guess. Uh, so they have a new superintendent, and Frankie thinks that he is swell. And he also thinks that Mr. Kent is swell. So that's good. And that is the end. Now let's talk about that, that story. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the chain, the escaped fugitive chain gang uh, story in, in one of the early action comics because that also involved a corrupt superintendent and it also involved Superman putting someone back into a very, very terrible situation in order to get the dirt on the person, even though they probably didn't need to because, like, let's think about this. Lyman is pretty open about beating the children and making them work. All Clark would have to do is, you know, sneak around with his camera and he could have taken pictures of it and uh, printed the story pretty easily. Uh, he also could have just quoted Frankie, you know, and, and then even even if he's a child, the, the police would probably have to look into it, right? Someone who was living in the orphanage says that there is abuse happening in the orphanage. So it's kind of a rehashing of, of a very similar story, especially because like the fugitive in the chain gang story, he was brought back in and then he was, you know, beaten and stuff and Superman did nothing. And the same thing happened with Frankie. Superman could have heard Frankie being beaten, uh, especially because he has super hearing, although we don't know when this was printed. So we don't know if his super hearing was established yet because it was established in a, a action comics story not one of the super early ones but fairly few issues ago still he kind of just leaves frankie to get beaten uh, for the sake of getting you know the information about the books yeah so this is one of this is one of the last newspaper strips to be reprinted because after this issue of superman it will be all original stories so we're going to skip over the middle two because those have already been covered by us. 
and we will go to the last story in Superman number three that we actually haven't read before. It involves Lois being demoted. No, what? Lois is such a good reporter, and she, you know, she's a newspaper reporter, can report on anything, but she gets demoted. She gets demoted to the Lovelorn column, uh, which apparently is a column for people who are, you know, need love advice. And they write into the paper to get advice. Kind of like a Dear Abby. Is that it? Dear Abby? I think so. So Lois is demoted. But you know what? Clark is promoted because he did such a good job uh, covering Trent's comeback. Which we all know my feelings on his reporting of Larry Trent's comeback. I am uh, I'm disappointed in him and his breaking of ethics. But so Lois is furious. She says, oh, how I hate Clark Kent. I tell you, he deliberately set out to take my job from me. I don't think that's true. Um, although the ending of this story might change my mind. Clark, after getting promoted, comes to Lois's de- desk and says that he is sorry about her being demoted. He's, he's really, really sorry that it happened. And she's not happy about it either. He, of course, being a guy who never takes no for an answer, asks her out for a date to um, you know, a nice place so that he can console her. She says no. She just says no. She says sorry, not interested. You know, no quibbling, no. You know, oh, I've already got other plans. And uh, a coworker comments on it. He says you didn't have to turn him down that coldly. And she says the less I see of that worm, the better. Like Lois despises Clark, and the fact that Clark is just like, I'm gonna keep trying, and eventually she'll love me is sad i'm actually really really sad for clark because it's like come on come on guy Uh, have some self-respect and also leave her alone she's at her job uh so later uh, a woman comes in and she wants to see the lovelorn editor i didn't think that this is typically how it happened like a person came in and talked to the reporter i thought they sent it in letters but this lady came in personally she says that she's desperate and this is her last resort so she has a husband good for her named Lou Frawley, and they got along great until he started hanging out with a tough bunch at Joe's Joint. A place like Joe's Joint, you know it's just going to be a tough crowd. For some reason, they show a photo of him. He looks like a guy. He's wearing a a suit with a a tie. Uh, Pinstripe, looks like pinstripe suit. And also, she thinks that he has gotten into being a, a smuggler. He thinks those people he hangs out with are smugglers. And also now when he comes home, when he rarely comes home, he beats her. So domestic violence, smuggling, and hanging out with a tough crowd. Wow. The trifecta. Why, has she gone to the police is my question. Although women don't have a lot of rights still uh, in 1939. So I don't know what her recourse would be uh, for going to the police about domestic violence. So Lois thinks that this is a good opportunity for her to get her regular news reporting job back. So Lois now changed her mind and wants to go out with Clark tonight, obviously for a cover. And when they get into the cab, she asks if she can pick where to go. And he says, yeah, go right ahead. They go to Joe's joint, coincidentally. What a weird, what a weird coincidence. While in there, Clark and her are dancing and she sees Lou Frawley and winks at him without Clark seeing, in order to get his attention. So, Lou, being the kind of meathead that he is, he sees a pretty lady wink at him. He's like, all right, she wants me. So he goes up there and asks to cut in. This must be a sort of 
quirk of old-timey, you know, social activities because Clark refers to something as a cut-in dance, which must be like certain dances you're allowed to ask people to cut in, which is a weird thing to do. Uh, I guess dancing is just an activity back then. It's not, it doesn't mean as much as I guess it does today. I just feel like I would feel weird asking someone like, hey, you two, I would like to dance with her. And and the guy who's like maybe on a date with her just has to be like, okay, uh, sure. I, I'm on a date with her, but I guess you can dance with her. It's weird. Uh, and I'm glad it's now kind of gone out of style. Clark tries to protest and says it's not a cutting dance. And Lou kind of pushes him away by the face, which is just so disrespectful. So Clark is over there seething in the corner. And Lou and Lois are dancing, and while they're dancing, Lois slips a note out of his pocket, and the note says, Jewel shipment coming in this evening from Barney. Why did that need to be a note? Couldn't you remember that, Lou, you dumb dummy? So Lou is bragging to his friends about Lois being wild about him, but they call him stupid because they saw her take a note out of his pocket uh, and that he is a sucker. So Lois now has, you know, the information that she needs, so she doesn't need Clark anymore. So she says that she's leaving. She doesn't want to stay here another second with a cowardly weakling who allows a girl, a girl to be insulted. And I don't know when the insult happened, if it was the cutting in or what, or if she just completely made up the insult. Uh, that, that would also make sense because she absolutely hates Clark, as we've said. As they leave Joe's joint, though, two of the guys that Lou were with was with pull guns on them and load them into a boat because Joe's joint is located down by the docks. So they think Lois is a detective and Clark tells them to leave her alone and they punch him in the face over the boat and drive away. Uh, Lois cares a little bit right now because she says he'll drown, he can't swim. So uh, Clark is going to die, uh, which will be sad for him. But now Clark has to do something about this. So he swims underwater, uh, with, uh, must hold his breath the whole time, which would make sense. Superman can go into space. Not at this point, but eventually he'll go into space. So he doesn't need oxygen. And he beats the boat to the wharf that they were going to. I don't know what. I don't know how he knew which wharf to go to, but that's not important. Don't ask so many questions. And the thugs are dragging Lois to somewhere. And they ask her to talk. And she's like, I'm not a detective. I'm just doing a story. I'm a reporter. And they tell her all about their plans. Like, what? I know they think that she's going to die, but if it was me, I would just, I would just not, I would just not monologue. Do not monologue if you're a villain. That's how you get caught. So basically, they're smuggling jewels in for people who don't want to pay custom duties, which is like the most boring smuggling uh, I've ever heard of. So they are gonna shoot Lois. And Superman bursts in because who needs doors? And they he scares the guy with the gun, so he squeezes the trigger. So Lois is going to get shot, and we're all going to be sad because she's going to die. But Superman races the bullet, and a fraction of a second before it can strike Lois, he gets in front of it, and it bounces off of his skin. So that's good. He then grabs all the bad guys, puts them in the boat, and then just like jumps over the river or the lake or the ocean, wherever there are to a police station and leaves them there. Lois, of course, is smitten with Superman. She says, please don't leave me. And he says, sorry, I can't remain. The next day, Lois is rushing into George Taylor's office to give him the exclusive scoop on this smuggling of jewels. 
and he says he says before you blow off any more steam read this and she reads the daily star which is the paper she works for and the front page says smugglers apprehended giant ring uncovered by who clark kent and she is shocked that he is alive and it says, though I'd never swum before in my life, I managed to reach shore alive and phone in the story. Surprised? Question mark. And that's the end. I know that Lois hates Clark. And if someone annoyed me every day at work, uh, asking me on dates that I didn't want to go on, and I continued to tell them no, and they still did it, and I despised their very being, I guess I wouldn't really care or call in the police or the ambulance or the Coast Guard if they were drowning. So, hey, you know what? I don't, I don't blame her for, for not, not caring that Clark is a dead, uh, and then also being angry that he is alive and stole her story. Um, but that is the end of Superman number three. So let's move on, and we'll be moving on to a different issue, but not a different character, because the next issue we are covering is Action Comics number twenty. Released December 1st, 1939, with a cover date of January 1940. You know the drill. Superman, Zatara. Let's get into the Superman story. Uh, so this Superman story involves a little bit of um, a location shoot, if you will. <laughs> uh, once we get into the story, you'll understand why that's funny. When we first join Superman in this issue, he is holding up a beam. A beam. He's holding up a bridge... Uh, a rail bridge that has is crumbling as a train is about to go over it. So he's holding it up, uh, a classic Superman thing to do, hold up a bridge uh, as a train goes over, and then he jumps away. He uh, dons his, his Clark Kent uh, disguise, or is Superman the disguise? Hmm, you be the judge, and heads back to the office. Uh, he talks with George Taylor, and he t is telling George that he was promised that he could go on vacation after he got his next big scoop, and his big scoop was the train bridge incident that he just stopped. And George uh, Taylor says, yes, you can go on vacation, but you have to mix a little business with your pleasure uh, because you have to go to Hollywood and get some movie news, which begs the question, what kind of reporter is Clark Kent? He covers literally everything on the face of the earth. We're talking sports. We're talking current events we're talking governmental stuff and, and now he's a now he's an entertainment reporter come on like this this just seems like a weird use of clark's talents but whatever he is on his way so he gets on a train and two days later he is in hollywood and he goes to colossal film studios and using his press credentials gets inside and he is on a tour to where they are filming a scene with Dolores Winters. Uh, she is a fake person, not real, not a real actress uh, from our time uh, or reality. And uh, uh, she is filming a scene. And Clark, using his telescopic vision, sees a, an assassin uh, who is intending to shoot Dolores Winter with a, with a handgun, with a pistol, a revolver. He pulls a rope and uh, the assassin would be assassin falls off of the sort of risers that he is on and onto the floor and he is captured by guards of the studio and taken away presumably to jail because you can't attempt to shoot somebody dolores is thankful to clark for saving her life so she says you know how can i thank you this would be a, an opportunity for a romantic subplot if that's what this 
was, but Clark's all business because he only has eyes for Lois. And he says, I'd love to interview you because I'm a newspaper reporter. And she says, that's great. Uh, come by tomorrow night and we can do an interview. So the next night, Clark goes to Dolores Winter's home and her butler says that Clark can't come in. Uh, she's not seeing anyone, uh, not even not even this reporter. And, and Clark tries to explain the situation like, you don't understand. She said that she could do an interview uh, tonight and and the guy won't let him in and Dolores comes over and is like what's what's going on and her butler whatever says that this guy Clark Kent insists that he has an appointment and you know Clark's thinking all right this is going to set it all straight and she says I'm not the slightest bit interested in being interviewed and so good evening so Clark goes back to his hotel room, and he's just so confused. He's like, I saved her life, and then she slams the door in my face. So the next morning, Clark is walking in Hollywood. Maybe he's going to um, the La Brea Tar Pits to see some uh, mammoth bones in, in tar. And uh, he sees a little newsy boy, and the little newsy boy is saying, Extra, extra, Dolores Winters to retire from screen. And Clark's like, I got to see that paper. So he reads the paper, reads the article, and finds out that she is throwing a big farewell party on her yacht, which is called the Sea Serpent. Clark says, the heck with her. She's giving all these mixed signals. Uh, hot, cold, hot, cold. I'm just going to forget she ever existed. Which fair, Hollywood will too once she you know, retires. That is, the, that is the curse of working in the entertainment industry. Uh, it's what have you done for me lately? So that night, all of these rich, you know, who's it's and what's it's uh, are getting onto the sea serpent, and they're gonna have a they're gonna have a gay old time, uh, as the comic says, and they're all talking like, "Hey, Dolores, why are you, why are you quitting? You're so good. You're like at the top of your game." And she says, "I've, you know, I've earned enough money. That's that's really what I was in it for was the money, and now that I have enough of the money, uh, I'm just gonna relax. Which, hey, I get it. You know, just make enough to." live a comfortable life for the rest of your life and just like just like hang you know read books uh the television and movie industries you know at the well the movie industry is at the top of its game right now you're gonna see a, a ton of great movies casablanca hasn't even come out yet at this point you're gonna you're in for a world of wonderful tales and surprises so the party is getting crazy everyone is getting popped on you know, bourbon, the most American of liquors. Uh, that's true. You legally, a bourbon has to be made in America, just so everyone is aware. Otherwise, it's just American-style whiskey. So, a little tidbit for you. Uh, so, Dolores sneaks away from the party to the bridge and tells the captain to uh, shove off, to lift anchor and, and head out to sea. All the guests are kind of confused about why they're moving because, you know, typically if you're having a party on a yacht, you say if you're going to be, you know, traveling around. Otherwise, you just chill in the harbor. If you haven't been to any yacht parties, you obviously don't know that. But the guests are confused. They go to Dolores and be like, yo, what's the big idea? And she says, this gun is the big idea, and all of my men have guns, and you're going to do what we say. So they head out to sea with these uh, rich Hollywood types. Uh, one tries to get a little bit uh, brave, and Dolores shoots him uh, right, in the, right in the chest. Uh, he's dead, I believe. They don't say, but I'm assuming he's dead. The next day, the uh, headlines are all about the shipload of celebrities that have vanished. And we see Dolores, and she is in the radio room of her yacht, and she's about to uh, send out a little address. 
that says, Attention world, Dolores Winters broadcasting from the Sea Serpent. On board my vessel I hold captive some of the wealthiest people alive, and if their relatives wish to see them again, they'll have to pay plenty. We then cut to Clark Kent, and he is reading the newspaper article about said announcement, and it says that she's asking for $5 million for the for the return of all of these people. I honestly think she could get more. Like There were a lot of people on that boat, and they're all very rich. Like I said, the, uh, the movie industry is in its golden age, so uh, everyone's making a lot of cash, and she probably could have gotten more. That's just my, that's just my two cents, though, on the, on the matter. So Clark heads back down to Colossal Film Studios because that is where the, the note saying where the ransom money should be delivered to is, is being sent to. Uh, so he's going to try to get in and try to get the scoop, you know, and also to maybe use that to be Superman. You know, he's, he's also Superman, if you forgot. Uh, this time his press credentials doesn't get him in because they've got it on lockdown uh, in order to keep everybody safe and possibly catch whoever delivers the uh, the note. So it's time for Superman. This is a job for Superman. So he turns to Superman. The guy still won't let him in. Uh, Superman says, whatever, jumps over the wall. So Superman's running around and he is eluding the guards. And the way he's doing that is he is climbing up the building, one of the buildings of the studio, the one that uh, the studio manager's office is in. Uh, so he is hanging outside the window like he normally does, big creeper Superman. And... Uh, he, for some reason, climbs into an adjoining room. He doesn't really need to. He, he could probably just deal with the, the window and read the note. But be, a little B&E is always a, a good time. It always livens up a Saturday night, I always think. As Superman is breaking and entering into this studio building, the ransom note for the location just magically appears. Uh, it just appears out of nowhere. And the guy says, the studio manager says, what? What in blank? It materialized right out of the empty air. But, like, that's it. It's sort of explained. Like, you can guess how it, it did that by the end. But it's not explained in the moment. So I was like, what? That's weird. So Superman uses X-ray vision to go through the room's walls to, to read the uh, note. He, he couldn't do that through the window, which is always has X-ray vision on it, you know? What is a what is a window but a but a wall with X-ray vision on it? You know, think about that. But the note says, uh, "Place five million within buoy near the central lighthouse at twelve o'clock midnight." Dolores. Oh, that's nice. They're on a first name basis. I bet they are. You know, because like she worked for them, and a big a big star like Dolores probably was on the first name basis with the studio manager. Uh, so Superman eludes, you know, eludes capture in the studio again to get out, and then he goes to the lighthouse. He jumps into the water and then is just hanging underneath as he watches the uh, buoy with the money in it delivered, and he's just kind of chilling there, uh, waiting. As we learned from the treasure hunting issue, uh, he can hold his breath, you know, indefinitely. Uh, he does not need oxygen to live, so that is cool for him. Man, that'd be so cool. I love swimming. It'd be cool to just be able to, like, dive down and just stay down there. There's no... You don't have any problems, and, and life's worries don't matter when you're swimming underwater. Uh, so he's waiting there for, like, a long time, 15, 30, 45 minutes, you know? Uh, he's just waiting. It's waiting, waiting. It's, it's, it's way past midnight at this point. He thinks it was a hoax. But out of nowhere, a submarine appears, and it uses a magnetic ray to bring the buoy inside of it. 
That's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, Superman swims to the submarine and just grabs on because submarines don't have windows, so no one can see him out there. So that's easy. Uh, and the submarine travels for hours, uh, two hours since since they grabbed the buoy they've been they've been traveling. And they go into this underwater cavern. And once inside, there's it's an air pocket sort of thing, so everyone can breathe and, and exist. And Dolores is there, and she takes the buoy, and, and the kidnapped victims are like, okay, you've got your money, are you going to let us go? And she says, no, I was never intending to release you alive. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, and she's got them all wired up to these helmets uh, that are attached to wires. And she's going to flip a switch and just electrocute them all, all at once. Just mass, mass electrocution. And Superman says, not if I have anything to do with it. And uh, he throws a stalagmite, the ones from the ground, not stalactites, that are tight to the ceiling. And smashes all the wires. And then Dolores, who like pretends like she didn't just see that, says, Why won't why don't you die? And and the, the victims, the kidnapping victims, have to explain to her because he broke the electrical connection. Like, come on, Dolores. Superman rushes at Dolores to try to, you know, grab her. And she snatches up a torch from the wall, because that's how this cavern is lit at this moment, and waves it at the, the victims and says she'll burn their faces off. And hey. That's their moneymakers, their actors. And we then we get a close-up of Dolores' face, just no words or anything. It's actually a very s- striking image for, for this sort of comic. She looks crazed. Like, her eyes are incredibly wide, her mouth is agape, and Superman has a sudden burst of intuition from that, from that look. And he says, those evil, blazing eyes, there's only one person on this earth who could possess them. Ultra. I, and again, I, I don't like that they don't call him them him the Ultra Humanite. I don't know why they don't do that. And Ultra Dolores says, You are indeed perceptive, Superman. You thought you had killed me in our last encounter, didn't you? But look, as you can see, I'm very much alive. But like Superman, as we all are thinking, I saw you die. Like right in front of me. That, that ray gun exploded. Like I think it was like last issue. And Dolores Ultra explains that her assistants found her body, her original ultra-humanite body, and uh, used adrenaline, kind of like in in Pulp Fiction. She doesn't reference Pulp Fiction because it'll be about 50-some or 40-some years until uh, Pulp Fiction is is released. So, And they use adrenaline, kind of big old needles, stuck it right in her ultra-humanite chest, woke her up, but it was clear that her body was dying. And so they kidnapped Dolores Winter and took the Ultra Humanite's brain and put it into her young, vital body. And so Superman says, it appears we're in a deadlock. It doesn't look like it from the panel. It looks like he has backed Dolores Ultra into a corner. Uh, But I guess, you know, we are not seeing the whole picture there. But Dolores threatens to scorch the the captives again. Uh, And Superman uses, I don't know if we should call this like a new power. I I would say so. It's not, it's not like freeze breath or anything like that but it is super breath so he takes in a big lungful of air and blows out the torch which i mean a torch is pretty well lit so obviously it can get blown out but not like a candle so that's pretty impressive and superman's like i'm gonna end your you know fiendish life of crime and dolores says you'll have to catch me first and jumps into the water and swims away uh superman dives in after her but cannot find her and so Dolores Ultra has gotten away. 
again. Which, here's my problem with his plan to become Dolores Winter. She's incredibly recognizable. Like, why wouldn't he just pick some other young woman or man? Or, I mean, hey, be a woman if you want. Uh, but, like, why not pick another young person that isn't, like, the world's most famous movie star in this universe? That doesn't make any sense. Again, the ultra-humanite, he's so very, very smart, but also just sometimes so dumb, as we've seen time and time again. So Superman says, you know, here you go. You can take the submarine kidnapping victims and, and head back to, to Hollywood, to Los Angeles. And one of them says, wait, I'll give you a fortune if you'll star in movies, because Superman is historically uh, depicted as a, a handsome man. Uh, and he says, sorry, not interested, and dives into the water and swims away. Because uh, Superman isn't all about that life. He's a reporter. He's about doing good. And he gets back to Metropolis and gives Hanson the story to his editor. His editor is shocked that such a big event would happen while he took a vacation. And he just happened to be there. And we're all like, yep, I'm incredibly shocked that something good happened to Clark Kent for his career. And he's thinking about ultra hum the ultra-humanite, and he's thinking, did Ultra escape? I mean, yes, that was easy to answer. If so, will he continue his evil career? Yeah, yeah, Clark, probably. He's done it every single time he's escaped. Every time he foiled one of his plans and he escaped, he did, a he did another evil thing, like, next week, next month. So he says, only the future can tell. Come back next time to find out. So that's the, uh... That's the Superman story from Action Comics number 20. I thought it was really good, uh, mostly because I did not see that coming. Like, I knew the ultra-humanite comes back or came back from the dead or wasn't ever actually dead. And I knew that he started doing this thing where he's basically, like, body-swapping. And that's what eventually leads to him being the big white gorilla with the bandoliers that we all know. Um, not we all. That I know him as. Uh, but I did not. I forgot that it was Dolores Winter that he switched bodies into next. Uh, so I was actually very surprised. That was a pretty good reveal, you know, very M. Night Shyamalan of him. But let's move on to the Zatara story of issue uh, number 20. Oh, and I should say that Superman story was written by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. So uh, the old two the old two mainstays of the Superman title. Uh, and this Zatara's title, uh, which is, is called Zatara and the Moon Men, is written and drawn by Gardner F. Fox and Fred B. Gardiner. And it opens with a blurb. During the summer of 1939, a great mist appeared and grew on various sea coasts all over the world. Men died by the thousands in cities and on sandy shores. It doesn't say anything about women. But I guess maybe women don't hang out at the docks at night. Which is when the, uh, the mist does its dastardly work, which is at night. Because uh, you just think it's like a fog or whatever, but it it uh, it kills you, uh, and it's it's confu Everyone's confused. Uh, hundreds die in Africa. Mist the mist of death is what it's called in India and Europe, and it's not great. It's not a good thing that's happening, and no one knows what's what's wrong. And so the great powers of the world hold a meeting. They say it comes from the lower coast of India. I'm not sure why they don't go investigate that lower coast of India. It's, it's like that scene from The Simpsons where they say, uh, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Uh, that's kind of what the, this group of politicians is doing uh, in this panel. So they say, you know what, we need to get Zatara. He saved the world from an icy death some months ago. So that's a little bit of reference of previous work. That's cool. 
Uh, and yes, they're like, yeah, get Zatara. So they go to the Explorers Club in London, because uh, that's where uh, Zatara's hanging out, because he's an explorer, you know, I guess you could call him. He's a magician first, explorer second. Uh, and a little a, a, a newsboy gives him the message, and, and he gives him $5. So Zatara's on the task, and they go down to the wharf to investigate him and Tong. And the mist is burning. The mist burns. Burns the skin, causing instant strangulation. So, like, it gets in your throat and burns your throat so bad that basically closes off your windpipe. That's pretty effective. He thinks that one explanation of it is a gaseous form of radium, um, which, which, if you'll remember, him and Tong had no problem walking through a tunnel of radium uh, in their Fountain of Youth adventure. So I guess when it's in a gas form, it's bad, but when it's rock, it's fine. Uh, not that it puts off tons and tons of radiation. So yeah, it's fine. Uh, but as as Zatara is making this explanation, possible explanation of what it is, he sees um a, what looks to be a woman in a like a bikini, sort of a strapless bikini and butterfly wings outside the window. Uh, she comes into the window of this hotel and says, "I am Nala, Zatara. My people are unknown to you." And she explains that. Uh, that the legends of man uh, tell of a race that came to Earth from the moon thousands of years ago. That race destroyed the people that existed on Earth, except a few. I am of the moon race, so I know. So she's basically this, you know, ancient race of people that came from the moon that uh, killed all of the humans except for a few on Earth. But Zatara just glosses right over that. That's not a big deal. No, She doesn't explain why they did that or... Um, if they're still planning on doing that. And it's also very confusing because there's also a separate race of moon people that also try to kill. Then they are the, the antagonists of the story. And Zatara wants to know why she is telling him these things because like it's a valid question because, you know, she just came out of nowhere. Uh, and she can explain the mists and what's causing them. Except she wants to show rather than tell. So they fly over. Zatara, you know, puts some mercury wings on his boots. He wants to be just like the Flash. Uh, and they fly over to this uh, small island off the coast of India. And it's apparently the lair of the moon men. Uh, so they go underwater to an underwater cavern, unsuspected by man, Zatara says. Uh, but the moon men, who are apparently a bad moon people, they live down here and they are causing all these problems. Uh, and Zatara comments that they're thousands of years ahead of human civilization. And Nala explains that they plan to overrun the globe. And so N Nala is going to leave Zatara here to return to her race of people. Uh, and that he must carry on alone. Uh, and as Zatara is creeping into the moon men's sort of civilization, he is spotted by one of them. And they look, and they look interesting, I would say. So they have a face that's like, a white color, uh, red eyes. It looks like they're wearing some sort of bodysuit. Either that or that's just what their skin coloration does of like this blue scaly sort of material color or whatever. Uh, and they have horns, uh, like bull horns, but like little short ones. And he shoots Zatara with a ray gun, but uh, Zatara does some magic, turns his rays into firecrackers, which would also not be cool to get shot at, but... And he traps him with a stone wall and gets him to escort him to the city, pretending to be old pals. 
And we get a scene sort of like in The Wizard of Oz where, you know, the, the, the big door and the guy opens the little window and says, you know, they say, oh, we want to see the wizard. And he says, nobody sees the wizard, not nobody, not know how. So they come to this wall and this other moon man kind of pokes his head over and says, you know, who's this? And the uh, moon man that's with Zatara says, my pal. And he kind of comes in and they bring him to their not king, but but dictator. They specifically say king out of style, our ruler dictator. Uh, and yes, the the race of people that have been here for millions of years and have been around longer than humans and so should have all the ample time to, to learn fluent English. Nah, they speak... Um, a lot of them speak in sort of clipped tones, a lot like Tong. So, so that's fun. Uh, so he's brought to the dictator, and he just the dictator just wants to kill him right out. You know, he's just a, he's just a guy. Let's kill him. Uh, Zatara squashes the dictator, but not like doesn't kill him. Just kind of I guess topples his throne on top of him. I would have just squished him, but uh, and so they release these winged snakes uh, that they call Nitons. Nitons, Nitons, and Zatara does some magic to make them go away, but that doesn't work, so they are immune to magic, uh, so instead he goes invisible and creeps away. Uh, then he finds, like, the storage room for all of these Nitons, these flying snakes, and stops them from opening the cages so that he can't, they can't release more. Then he's exploring this uh, base a little bit more, and it peeks around a corner and sees that Nala has been captured by the Moon Men. And so he does something that's reminiscent of what people do to butterflies, and he puts a big glass jar over Nala to protect her from a big sword that's going to behead her, uh, and then gets her out of there, and they come up with a plan to kill all of the Moon Men. Uh, the first part of their plan is to get rid of all of the nets so that the moon men cannot catch the nitons uh, after they're released. Uh, so that's so Zatara does some magic to collect all of the nets and turn them into smoke, getting rid of them. Then he explores the city and uh, looks for the source of the mist, the thing that brought him here in the first place. And he comes upon this laboratory where two moon men are synthesizing solid radium into a gaseous form. Zatara turns himself into a moon man and then kind of hypnotizes them into thinking that they're his best friend so that they tell him everything. So the gist of their plan is they've amassed all of their forces to the city uh, for a worldwide attack on the earth. All rivers, lakes, and oceans will be planted with the radi gas and in t so radium gas, radi gas is what they call it. Um, and in two days, all life on Earth will be dead. So it'll kind of bubble up from all of the waterways and kill everybody. Zatara, after finding out the plan, breaks one of the canisters that's in the lab and traps these two men in with uh, this gas, killing them. And then he takes the rest of the canisters in a sort of um, Fantasia, uh, you know, that uh, old Disney cartoon with Mickey Mouse. And he finds the magician or the wizard's hat and he makes all of the the brooms and mops and stuff dance around and clean. It's kind of like that. He leads it on sort of a conga line around the city, sort of lining them up to be released. Uh, him and Nala reconvene outside the city, and Zatara unleashes the radi gas. Uh, the Nitons get released as well. 
And so all of the Moon Men are dead uh, with a little one-two punch, a little gas and snake uh, attack. We've all been there. And so then, after that's resolved, Zatara see, is talking to Nala uh, to wrap things up. And he says, you haven't told me about yourself, Nala. What race do you come from? You know, why do you have, why do you have wings? And, I mean, she did say that she comes from the moon earlier. But, see, this is confusing. Because then she says, from a race that inhabited the Earth a million years ago, we live on the moon. It, I guess it's implied that she was the race that the moon men came down to eradicate. And then... After, you know, they escaped to the moon, so they did a little swapsies. Like, the moon men came down, and this race, which doesn't have a name yet, went up to the moon. Uh, not sure how they are adapted to living on the moon, but they've done it. And it looks like next issue of Action Comics, Zatara will be going to the moon, because Nala says, Would you like me to take you up there to my moon? Uh, and that's the end. The first, I believe, two-parter for Zatara, uh, or sort of semi-two-parter. Um, one story leading off to the next uh, that I think we've seen. Uh, that's not true. Last episode, the, the episode, the issue that got lost to technical difficulties was a two, like a second part with Setap from the Ophir, the youth swap thing that happened in that issue. So I guess that's technically a the similar thing, but a fine story. I don't have any big problems with it. No Tong. So that was good uh, because you know my feelings on him. And uh, just a really silly sort of uh, Zatara story because let's let's all just admit it, they make up stuff for Zatara like way outside of what they make up for Superman or uh, or Batman. So uh, it's it's when it gets a little bit silly, that's normal for Zatara. So that's that's good. That's his wheelhouse. But yeah, let's move on. And what we'll be moving on to is Detective Comics number thirty. Five, released December 7th, 1939, with the cover date of January 1940. Just a Batman story in this one, and this Batman story was written by Bill Finger, the for a long time uncredited uh, co-creator of Batman, and the other co-creator of Batman, Bob Kane. So that's good that, that Bill got to have a hand in it later on. Uh, so I do have to do a little disclaimer. We all know what Batman looks like. And with my familiarity with the character, I completely did not notice that Batman got a redesign somewhere between, you know, some somewhere in the last few issues uh, because he no longer has the silly uh, cowl where it's like really, really on the side of his head, like sort of like ears. It's now more the traditional straight up from sort of his temple area. It's still a little bit curved like bad ears, but it looks much more like what we think of as Batman today. It's, you know, black with the blue accents, underwear on the outside, the gray. It's it's very it's really it's a really nice look. There's actually a really good sort of close up on the very first page of this issue. Batman is holding a gun though, so that's a little bit that kind of Batman is still killing. He he stops killing in the next few issues i believe it'll be a big event uh, and i'm sure they'll talk a lot about it he's like you know what i actually don't like killing people but let's get into it police commissioner gordon sits chatting with his friend bruce wayne unaware that he is the batman and you know what if if someone ever narrates my life i do just want them to do it like that you know like oh bill sits with nick byers unknowing that he ate five pizzas yesterday something like that some secret that i have uh, that my friend doesn't know about, I want the narrator to, to mention it, just so the audience knows, like, dang, Nick has got a lot of secrets. 
But they are just having a chit-chat, and uh, Commissioner Gordon is furious. He wants to catch the Batman. He's making the cops all look like idiots. But uh, they are interrupted because a uh, a man is here to see Commissioner Gordon, and he looks crazed. He informs Bruce and Commissioner Gordon that he is uh, a collector of curios, and he has a small little museum of his pieces. And a few nights ago, he got a visitor, and that visitor was Sheldon Lennox. He's a globe-trotting explorer, and Sheldon Lennox has for him a rare curio, because you know he loves those. He got it from India. Uh, it was sitting on a stone pedestal in a cave, and it is a solid piece of ruby carved to look like uh, Kila, the Hindu god of destruction. I don't know if that's accurate. I am not hindu but it's obviously it's uncut it's a huge chunk of of ruby and it would be worth a lot of money so he bought it from lennox uh he doesn't say how much he bought for it but it was obviously it's worth a lot of money so he probably paid a lot of money but five days ago he got this threatening note and it says we the followers of Kila, command you to return our god to the temple from which it was stolen or else he will bring destruction upon you. And then it's signed with a little picture of Kila. And let's let's talk about what Kila looks like. He is sitting cross-legged. He's got like um, pointy shoes on, sort of like what an elf would wear. And he has uh, a face sort of like a bulldog and little tiny uh, horns. And he's made of ruby, so he's pink. So, and then an hour ago, he received another note. So it's been five days since the first note, and this is the second note. It says, Already destruction visits Lennox, the guilty one. You yet may save yourself if you restore Kila to us. Sorry, it's in cursive, and sometimes I have difficulties reading that. Uh, so they've got to get they've got to get going and find uh, Sheldon Lennox because his life is in danger. Like he he could be in danger right now. He could be dead. Uh, so the sirens of Commissioner Gordon's car are wailing. He's driving fast, and they turn the corner, and they spot the car with a group of, of Hindus. They are, of course, racist depictions of what people who live in India uh, look like. And they have Sheldon Lennox tied up and gagged in the back of their convertible. They're driving in style. They're kidnapping in style. They go on a chase, and the... Convertible abruptly stops at the wharf's at a, at a wharf's edge, and the cops hear a scream and a splash, and what's called a Hindu's defiant shout. Uh, they say Kila is avenged, and they drive off. Uh, so it's implied that Lennox's body he was killed and thrown into the river, so he is dead. Uh, so they have they have made good on their first threat. So uh, now they're putting uh, Weldon the the curio curious man they're putting him under guard and the idol under guard and bruce wayne has been along for this entire ride uh because commissioner gordon asked him if he wanted to come around come along completely just shirking uh police protocol and bruce says yeah i could maybe write a story about it i don't know if they're trying to make bruce wayne like a reporter now but commissioner gordon asks him if he wants to come back to headquarters and he says no i'm gonna go home and write that story and then the next the next panel is uh, that story written by Bruce Wayne in the Tribune, which is the local paper. So I, it's kind of lazy. Like, everyone works in being a reporter. You know, Lee Travis, he's the editor of The Globe. Clark Kent's a reporter. Bruce Wayne's just a, a playboy billionaire. Maybe he's just doing this for fun. But 
I don't know. It seems weird. It's very, it's weirdly out of character. So the story piques the interest of the criminal underworld of not Gotham. Um, It's probably still New York at this point. Uh, So these two people, these two sort of gangster looking guys uh, are talking about stealing it. Uh, And then also a a Chinese gentleman is also interested in it uh, once the police are no longer protecting it. So this part of this is the part that is weird. So uh, a few weeks later, Weldon, the curio guy, the guy with the idol, is talking to Commissioner Gordon. He says, "Uh, yeah, so I think you can take your men away now. The idol is in a burglar-proof glass, and I'm sure I'm safe enough. It doesn't say anything about having found the men who did this to Lennox. I don't know if just the police just didn't do any work. They're just like, we're going to put them under guard, and that'll be good enough. So now, so now the idol's underneath this this burglar-proof glass. It's basically like a glass dome that has an alarm on it. And so now the police are gone, and Bruce Wayne has a hunch that something's going to pop up tonight. Uh, so he dons the, his guise of Batman with his new Batman costume, and it looks really good. It does. It looks like it's a wicked improvement to uh, the old one. It just looks so much more like what we know of as Batman today, and it looks, it looks great. So Batman creeps into Weldon's estate, and he sees a man tied up, and he says, Oh, someone's here already. It's about to pop off. And we see those two gangster-looking men. Uh, and when I say gangster-looking men, I mean fedoras and, like, pinstripe suits. You know, the old-timey gangster. Uh, they're trying to, to, you know, bypass the alarm so they can get the glass off of this idol and take it and obviously sell it uh, on the black market. Uh, they have a scuffle with Batman. Batman breaks one of their arms and kind of incapacitates them both. Uh, but while this is happening, that group of, of Hindu worshippers comes in, or like people who, Kila worshippers, let's just call them that, Kila worshippers. And one hits him in the back of the head with a big stick, knocks him out. Uh, they smash the glass rather than bypassing the, the alarm and take the idol. And uh, after that, Batman regains consciousness just as the police are coming in. And they're going to try to arrest him. Batman has to sort of, he it looks like he just like, palms one in the face like does a palm strike on on one in the face uh, of the cops and then he kind of swings on a chandelier out a window onto a branch and down to safety it's a very very this whole sequence of of the burglaries is very very action like you can feel the motion of it so that's good uh because sometimes the action can feel kind of fake uh but yeah there's lots of good movement in in these last few panels uh, and Batman gets into his car. I'm sad that we don't have any mention of where the car was parked. Uh, how do we know it wasn't found by the police? Batman must have just got lucky. But I will say about his car, it is a different car. It's now the same color blue that Batman's accents are with his costume. And it's also now a roadster. And if you don't know what cars are, roadsters are convertibles that have like a really small windshield and, and obviously no roof, uh, and they're a two-seater. And it looks very it looks very high-powered, I will say that, which is what it's referred to as is a high-powered roadster. So he chases after the Kilo worshippers, uh, and they head to Sinfang, Chinese and Oriental Curios. And I will say the Chinese man that I said was interested in the idol, he was referenced as Sinfang. So that's there's connection there. Batman watches unnoticed, and then he heads to a different part of Chinatown to talk to Wong, who is referred to as the unofficial mayor of Chinatown, a wise and honest man. So he talks to Wong, and uh, Wong tells him that Sin Fang 
is likely going to be cutting it up and selling it for pieces uh, because Sin Fang deals in stolen goods. He's a, he's a fence, basically. Batman heads to Sin Fang's shop, and he just walks in right at the front door because uh, he's the Batman. He's not scared. And he says to Sin Fang he's come for the Ruby Idol, and he says, surely the great Sin Fang does not care to deal with stolen goods because obviously if he knew if it was like common knowledge by like the average person that he dealt in stolen goods that would not last long the police would be there sin fang lies and says that he didn't know it was stolen and that his reputation would be ruined or would suffer if if it was thought that he dealt in stolen goods so he leads batman to where the idol is so they head to the back room and this store is huge like they go through so many different hallways and doors and stuff uh, and as they head through this door, these two men with uh, large swords, one looks sort of like a katana, and the other one looks sort of like a big, big scimitar or a, a falchion. And they come at Batman. Uh, they attack him. Uh, he quickly disarms both of them uh, and forces one to stab the other one through uh, the chest. Uh, so I think that guy's probably dead. The other one just gets a pop in the mouth uh, from Batman's fist. And after that's done, Sin Fang's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. My guards, they, they saw your masked face and they thought you were an enemy. Uh, this is, I'm, it's such a terrible accident. And Batman's like, I forgive you. Lead on, my friend. Sin Fang heads through the, through the door. And before Batman can get through it, it slams shut and a bunch of gas comes out of this pipe. Uh, Batman identifies it as mustard gas and he grabs a particular glass vial from his belt and breaks it against the wall, and it's some sort of chemical aerosol that mixes with the mustard gas, causing it to be inert. It's actually really, really clever, because uh, I'm sure mustard gas is pretty prevalent of a, of a like, I guess, a, a killing weapon uh, at this point in time, because I believe it was used in World War One. so... Sin Fang brushes that off as being another accident, uh, or actually, sorry, Batman says something. He says, um... I've just had another little accident. You've got bad plumbing in your house, Sin Fang. There's gas escaping from the pipes. Sin Fang's like, I'll have to fix that at once. Uh, Sin Fang steps behind a wall and says, I'll get the idol for you. And he pulls a switch and a trap door opens. And Batman falls into this really, really deep pit. But there's water at the bottom. So presumably he's going to eventually drown uh, because you can only tread water for so long. But there's a pipe from where the water is coming out, and Batman grabs onto it, and he gets up on the pipe and then sort of reaches the top by uh, doing like a big jump uh, and gets free. And then he sneaks into a room, uh, and Sin Fang is in there with the idol, and he says, with the Batman disposed of, no one can take you from me, my precious ruby. Uh, And it says, the Batman, if he had known who I am. Uh, And then suddenly peels off the skin of his hands, and uh, wipes stuff off his face. And it was Sheldon Lennox in yellow face the whole time. Ba-bum-bum. And Batman, being super intelligent, as we know, he, was, he, you know he, he spent his entire life honing his mind and body and wealth. He says that he had a feeling that it was Lennox all along, especially because the police failed to recover your body from the river. Uh, Lennox needed money. And he made a deal with Sin Fang to cut up the ruby. And then he used the destruction legend it was supposed to have and wrote those notes. So he did a, a classic thing in cons where you sell someone something and then you steal it back. So you kind of double dip because then you can still sell the actual, like sell it for real uh, or sell it as a con again, you know, over and over and over again. 
Uh, and the Hindus were fake, and he staged his death, and he had the ruby stolen. And Lennox reveals that he killed Sin Fang because they quibbled over money, and then he took his place because he can speak Chinese, being a globetrotter and all. Uh, and then Lennox pulls out a gun out of his robes and attempts to shoot Superman. Not Superman, oh my gosh. Uh, and Superman just gets shot so much that it's sort of a reflex. Attempts to shoot Batman. <laughs> and Batman dodges out of the way, grabs the idol, throws it at Lennox's face. It collides with his face. And he falls backwards out of a window, crashing to the ground, dead. And the idol lands on his chest poetically and then the next day at police headquarters uh commissioner gordon is reading uh the newspaper and he says that batman he's done it again he's making the police department look ridiculous i wish i could get my hands on him it's like jim james gordon do some police work i didn't see a single bit of police work except for that chase at the beginning do some detective work find out that those hindus were fake like Figure out that Sin Fang is dead. Come on, do the work. Batman does the work, and that's why he gets the credit. Uh, and that's it. Uh, I think it's a pretty good Batman story. There's, like, detective work involved. There's some good fights. There's a new design for Batman, which I think it might have been last issue that he had the new design. But this is the first time I'm noticing it, so it counts for this issue. Yeah, it's really, it's really good issue. Batman's getting, Batman's getting really good. Batman's getting really good. That is it for Detective Comics number 35. Now let's move on to Adventure Comics number 46, released December 12th, 1939, with a cover date of January 1940. Uh, Sandman only in this one, but let's get into this story, and this story is called Sandman Meets with Murder. We, we see Wesley Dodds, the Sandman, sitting in his Wesley Dodds living room, talking with his Wesley Dodds friend, Dud. We're not told his last name at this point, but his name is Dud. I believe it's short for Dudley. They're talking about a friend of theirs from college named Charlie Hall. He was a, a, a good artist. Uh, he was a bit of a wild man, though. He met a woman, and she straightened him out, got him, got him squared away, and put him on the, the path to being successful in, in things like oil and uh, advertising. He does... He does he must have an advertising firm or something, and he does the art for it. Dudley and Wesley Dodds are going to go see Charlie Hall and his wife uh, at their penthouse apartment. Very fancy. But when they get there, they're not home. Uh, the door is locked. Uh, they knock on the door, and no one comes. And Wesley happens to look down and sees blood coming out from underneath the door, underneath the crack in the door. And he quickly diverts Dud uh, away and just says, oh, I guess they're not home. Uh, let's go, and he makes an excuse to, you know, end, end their socializing, uh, and he heads home to put on his Sandman disguise. Oh, I completely forgot. I'm so sorry. I completely forgot to talk about uh, who wrote and drew this one, because there's a new artist involved. Uh, it's, it's Gardner Fox writing, and uh, Ogden Whitney is on the art, and the art is, is great. It's very, very detailed, uh, very realistic for this time and it's really good. I, I really like it, and I didn't want to didn't want to forget to mention it. So after putting on his Sandman disguise, Sandman goes back to the apartment building and makes his way up to the top to the penthouse. Opens the door, and it is it is pitch black inside. He trips over something, turns on the light, and finds Charlie Hall's body. 
He was the one bleeding underneath the door out into the hallway. As Sandman is investigating, the knob of the front door starts to turn, and he dives behind a divan, which is a type of couch, and uh, in hides. Uh, it is kind of funny. He's hiding, but he's like poking his head out the top. Uh, and if I've never if I've never talked about what Sandman looks like, he's wearing a, a standard suit uh, with a cape, uh, sand is like special gas mask, and then he's wearing a fedora. And so he's looking over the, the top of the couch, and so his like whole entire hat is, is above the couch, uh, and there's no way he's actually hiding. But of course, he actually is hiding, because this is comics. Uh, a woman, a blonde woman, comes in, and she investigates the body. Uh, she pulls out a knife or wipes down a knife that's in the back of Charlie Hall, it looks like. And uh, she's wondering why the lights are on, and she, she leaves quickly. So Sandman stands up, and he's like, okay, so she knew the lights were off. So she must be involved with this murder. Uh, so he tries to explore more of the apartment, but the door is locked. So what does he do? You know, he could pick the lock, I suppose, but instead he just takes the door completely off its hinges, which I feel like it'd be quicker if you're a good lock pick. It would take less time to pick the lock than to remove all of the hinges, unless he's got like a cool tool. Because sometimes those hinges can stick, you know, pressure from the door, old hinges, like the little little pins can stick but he just takes it off with with ease because in one panel it's the door is on and the next panel it's just in his hands he's holding it very very easily he's holding it like it's nothing now he goes into this bedroom and inside is a woman a blonde woman who looks exactly like the other woman we were told at the beginning that uh charlie hall's wife is a, a woman with the yellowest hair that anyone's ever seen so that means she's very very blonde and this woman is very very blonde and so was the other woman uh so there's something there uh but she is dead the woman on the bed uh, is dead uh so sandman leaves the bedroom and puts the door back on easy peasy uh, and he says there's a a mighty peculiar mystery here i'm going to solve it or bust and the door behind him opens and in it is the the blonde woman, the the first one, uh, she has a gun and she says, I guess you'll bust, mystery man. Uh, so they have a little sort of gun battle, gas gun versus regular gun. And Sandman quickly shuts off the light and has gassed her and she falls asleep and she wakes up an hour later thinking that it was a dream because she's easily fooled. Uh, and she finds uh, what she what's called um, a copy of the Delanol ad an advertisement for a cigar shop. It says, even at a cigar store on 4th Avenue, you can get perfect cigarettes. Which is like, that's not a very... What's wrong with 4th Avenue? I don't I, I don't know what city they're in. If they're in New York, I don't know anything about 4th Avenue. Is 4th Avenue bad? I don't know. But apparently, even on 4th Avenue, you can get a perfect cigarette. That's so good, I guess. The woman leaves, calls a taxi... Uh, and Sandman chases down after her. He gasses the policeman because a murder has been reported upstairs. Uh, and then he leaves saying that's the murder that I'm investigating. And then when he gets outside, there are two other policemen that he gasses. And then, you know, his compulsion, he has to leave behind his calling card, his sand. He sprinkles sand everywhere. Even though he's in the middle of chasing after this woman, he's like, I gotta stop and just sprinkle sand everywhere. It's outside too, so like, there's a real possibility that no one even notices. Um, he follows her. Luckily, the taxi didn't get too far ahead. And she heads to that cigar store, the Delano Cigar Store. And inside, she asks for a package for the coin. 
and the guy says, oh, the coin, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, here you go, and he gives her a package. And as she's coming out of the cigar shop, Sandman pulls a gun on her and says, quiet now, and we'll enjoy things better. That sounds really creepy. Ooh, ooh I didn't like that. That's not a great phrase. So uh, he gets her into his car, his Sandman car, and he tries to get her to, to talk. She knows that she's kind of got the upper hand here because if anyone notices her in here, it could mean trouble for the Sandman. So she honks the horn. She like reaches over and honks the horn before the Sandman can react. And a policeman comes over and Sandman tells a story about coming back from a costume party with his girlfriend. And she was just she was just doing a dare and uh, being silly. And uh, she blew, she honked the horn. And this woman, whose name is uh, Nora, she doesn't say anything to the cop about it being any any other way. And so when the cop is gone, he's like, Sandman is like, why didn't you tell? Like, you you know, you could have told him that I was holding you captive. And she says that she'd rather tell him if he will help her. And he says, go ahead. This whole scene gave me very big um, Maltese Falcon vibes with uh, Humphrey Bogart, if you've seen that film uh, or read the book, I suppose. The femme fatale in, in that one, she acts very like one minute she's acting all coy and stuff. And the next minute she's like turning on on. Sam Spade, that's it, uh, Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and this whole scene gave me very those kind of vibes, which would make sense. I don't know if that movie is... That movie might have been made, uh, but the book was definitely out at this time. And, and, I mean, The Sandman is a noir, so it's correct to get those same sort of vibes from the female, not antagonist, but, I guess, characters. Uh, so she explained that she is Nora Luftis, twin sister of Dora, who is married to Charlie, so Dora Hall. Uh, and she's trying to get away from a gang that runs counterfeit money. They were blackmailing her to get her to do what they want, which is Charlie makes these ads that says where the dead drops are for money. And she goes and picks up the money that's been changed out with counterfeit money. That's what she was doing. But they were going to they must have, I guess, made enough money. And so they they were going to blame it on Charlie. And they, so they killed him and blamed it on him uh, or, or were going to blame it on him. Uh, and it's it's this organization called The Coin. Oh, sorry. The head of this gang is called The Coin, which is like, that's a really spot on name. We know exactly what you do. And that's who she thought the Sandman was in the apartment. Uh, so he drops Nora off at home and is going to go to the, the handoff himself so he can foil their plans or whatever. So he heads to the delivery, and the delivery is this stoop, and uh, sitting on the stoop is this old woman wearing like a shawl over her head and she takes the takes the money from him because he says that Nora couldn't come and and he was sent instead and he follows the woman busts through the door of the building that she goes into and then they they have an altercation where the coin who was this woman says that don't don't you think I expected you so Nora couldn't come a eh? she's double crossed me a eh? always thought she was a weak sister now dot dot and then they have a gun battle and they, they struggle, and the woman's gun gets pressed into her side, and the trigger goes off, and it shoots her in the stomach, and that's gut shots are slow, painful deaths. So, not great for her. But as she's falling to the ground, her mask and wig falls off, and who's underneath? Dudley. Dudley Jones. Wesley Dodd's friend from college, who he's met earlier in this comic. And, since Dudley Jones is going to die, he's going to confess all of his... Uh, sins like the Sandman is a priest, and this is confessional. 
He tells the Sandman that when Charlie Hall was still wild and rambunctious, he got him in on this sort of relay scam, drawing the ads that would point to where money pickups are for agents of him, Dudley Jones, the coin, for this counterfeiting scam. Uh, and also that he drew him a set of a drawing of money, and so he could get plates made to counterfeit the money. So Charlie has been really, really integral to this counterfeiting scheme. But this woman, Dora, fell for him and tried to get him, you know, on the straight and narrow, get him away from Dudley's influence. So he had to kill them both. And he was going to kill Nora too, but obviously the Sandman came instead. He says, I'm sorry now, but it's too late. I guess take care of Nora. She and Dora were my stepsisters. I hated both of them and made them follow up my instructions. What a weird... I mean, I guess it gets the reasoning behind why Nora was involved in the first place, because her stepbrother forced her to. But, I mean, anybody could have done that. That was a weird detail to add in there, just for a little bit more uh, spice, I guess. Um, yeah, and so then Sandman burns the count, like, the f counterfeit. I'm not quite sure what the pick, what the package was. It's never, it's never said what it is. I just assumed it was money. It, they called it hot money, which, does that mean it's counterfeit? But shouldn't you be sending the counterfeit money out into the money supply and getting the good money back like that's hmm i don't know but sandman burns it at the end so i hope it's counterfeit money he's not burning legal tender because i mean he well he's rich so who cares but yeah so that's the that's the story that's the sandman story from uh, adventure comics number 46 i would say pretty good pretty very noir a lot of noir aspects some murder some gunfights some struggles with Men disguised as old women, a classic tale. So, um, yeah, let's move on. And we'll be moving on to Flash Comics number two. Ha! Huh? Uh, released December 15th, 1939, with a cover date of February 1940. We have a debut in the Johnny Thunder story in the issue of Daisy Darling, his on-again, off-again girlfriend, but she will be obviously in the Johnny Thunder story, and that one comes last. So let's go into the Flash story, the you know, the one that the comic got its name from. Uh, this Flash story was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Harry Lampert, the same duo as the first issue. This Flash story begins at a, I guess it'd be similar to like the Rockettes, uh, a, a, a chorus line sort of show. Uh, it's called The Fancy Follies of 1940 and one of the girls is shot on stage and so everyone all of the audience members and and cast members all rush out and they're all they're all distressed and terrorized because obviously there's a you know a murderous gunman around and so they rush out and one of the leads in the fancy follies theo uh theo parker uh runs out of a door and runs right into her old friend joan williams joan williams of course is the friend eventual girlfriend eventual wife of jay garrick they call a taxi and they uh, begin their trip home to joan's house uh, and and theo tells her what happened that uh, one of her co-stars was shot and she's not the only one that's been shot and that she was shot with a silenced weapon and it's not good it's not a good situation and joan su suggests that she has somebody that could possibly help the flash uh, speaking of the Flash, we see him in his civilian guise of Jay Garrick. Uh, he sees Joan in a taxi driving by, and he decides to race her back to his house. 
Uh, and this begins the trope of, and I think it was maybe in the first issue, but maybe maybe I just don't remember it, of any time the Flash uses his super speed, just, like, people, like, kind of freak out. Um, which, of course, you should and would, because no one should be able to run that fast. So Theo, Theo Parker, sees, for an instant, uh, Jay Garrick's face in the taxi as it's moving, as it's driving down the street. Um, and she's like, help a man! So Joan and Theo Parker get back to Joan's apartment, and the Flash, of course, has beaten them there. He's hiding behind a curtain like a little creep. Uh, he's going to probably jump out and say boo or something. But he overhears them talking about what's been happening with the um, the fancy follies. Theo tells Joan that there are two other girls have been shot, too, you know, recently. And they all knew one man, a Lord Donnellan of Ireland. And Theo Theo's done a lot of sort of detective work up to this point because uh, she she knows a lot of stuff so flash is going to go investigate uh he super speed runs out from behind the curtain and puts on his flash costume and uh searches the the fancy follies dressing room while this conversation with theo and joan are happening theo tells joan that all the girls went out with lord Donnellan, and then a little while later they were shot uh so joan's gonna go talk to this Lord Donnellan because she is an independent woman uh, who can do what she wants. As soon as Joan leaves, Flash gets back from investigating the dressing room and he has to go quickly to the telephone book and find Lord Donnellan's address and then he runs off. Theo thinks she's going insane because this man just ran in at the speed of lightning and then left at the speed of lightning after looking in the telephone book. And so then we get a scene of him running through this large crowd, and there's someone is like, hey, quit shoving. Hey, someone stop breathing down my neck. Ah, my hat, it's blowing away. Uh, we then see a scene between two men who we haven't seen before. One is named Gaul, and he is being told by the other one that, that shooting all these girls is tough on them. And it's like, yeah, that, it's, that is true. Shooting women is tough on women. Uh, but, but don't worry. It's all a part of his plan to terrorize the entertainment industry until till the prices for everything drops so that he can buy it up and own everything because uh, he wants to be an entertainment mogul and own all of the world's entertainment. So the one who wants to rule the entertainment industry, he leaves. And uh, the other one is looking at an old-timey ticker tape. And it's very... It's a very I don't know how they work, but I've always they've always intrigued me because, like, is it connected to something? Is it morse code it i don't know it because it prints out like little words uh the flash then throws a metal lightning bolt uh into the wall next to this guy as he's reading the news and he and the flash calls it his metal calling card it's like okay um that's cool that would actually like super speed throw that that would i could like like go through a guy i guess it's not super strength it's just super fast uh and as he's talking to this guy the other one comes back with a gun the Flash disarms him before he can shoot him, but the other one has a gun too, the the one the original one. Uh, and he shoots the Flash, but of course the Flash misses. At this moment, Joan arrives, because it takes her for, like forever to get anywhere compared to the Flash, and the Flash says that he's taking her home, and she says, you are not. I'm going to ask these guys some questions. Uh, but the Flash doesn't let her, takes her home. And then and then weirdly, Joan explains the plot of, of Lord Donnellan, uh, and and Gaul, but but she wasn't there. It's weird. She explains it to the Flash, 
because she says those crooks headed by Gaul are out to terrorize the entertainment industry. Theo told me all about it. So Theo already knew. Then why was she going to Donalyn's house to talk to him? Like, was she going to, was she going to, you know, do something to him? It doesn't really make any sense. It's very confusing. Uh, We then shift back to Gaul and his associate, and uh, they are talking about their plans that they have in this envelope for all of their operatives. Uh, And he says, don't worry, uh, I've got the packet here. And then the flash is suddenly there because he just ran in and uh, grabbed the packet out of his hands. And then he has to go and stop all of the operatives. But that's what I'm confused about that again. Because doesn't he have like their their orders, like their, their 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 mission statements of like what they're supposed to be doing? So they wouldn't be they wouldn't know what they're supposed to do. It's this part doesn't make sense to me either. Uh, he also just leaves these two like men who are planning on killing people. He just leaves them, doesn't tie them up, doesn't do anything. The Flash then goes to these three different places uh, to stop all these assassination attempts. He throws a lightning bolt. Uh, at a guy with a gun and knocks the gun out off course and he shoots into the ceiling doesn't do anything to that guy i guess he must just assume that the guy's only got one bullet but i guess people would maybe tackle him or like the cops would show up soon i don't know it's just he's leaving it a lot to chance uh, or i guess people doing something he goes to the next one and uh, uh, takes all of the guy's clothes off except for his tank top and boxers and sock garters and i guess takes his gun too he doesn't say he takes his gun but he takes his gun too so he's essentially trapped that guy in the balcony that he was sitting in but i don't actually know that he did like he could just easily just go walk out and be like hello someone stole all of my clothes uh can you help me um and then he runs to this estate where a woman is giving a private show to some rich people and he doesn't see anybody with a gun. He thinks something didn't go off with the plan, so it's not going to happen. But a secret door opens, and inside is a crossbow. And it shoots automatically at this woman who's singing. And the uh, the Flash grabs it out of midair, of course, uh, and saves her life. The Flash then heads back to Gaul's hideout, or his you know office, or whatever, to, I, I guess, finish the job of capturing them that he could have done, because he's the Flash. He's got he's fast enough. He could have tied them up before, but he's going back to capture them once and for all, and they have laid a trap where about, it looks like, five different guns are all strung up with string so that when the Flash runs in, they all shoot him at once. And so then they leave, because they're heading to a second location. And the Flash gets there, and all the guns go off, and he dodges all the bullets, because he's super fast. And then he runs through New York looking for them. He looks on trains, he looks on trolleys, he looks in cars. And meanwhile, Joan and Theo are heading to uh, Lord Donalyn's mountain cabin that she heard about at Boone Lake. Uh, I don't know how they know that Gaul and and his associate have left, uh, but they do know that they've left, and they're going there to, I guess, capture them themselves. Uh, And while they're on their way up to this mountain cabin, uh, Joan offers Theo a cigarette, and it's a very specific kind of cigarette. It's a Duro, D-U-R-O. And she brags that it's an imported cigarette, and it's very rare. Uh, All right, Joan. Uh, Is this this advertising placement? Uh, I don't know if a Duro is an actual brand of cigarettes. Uh, A few panels later, the Flash is still looking for these guys, 
and he's running and he sees a like a recently lit cigarette and it's a duro cigarette and he knows that it's Joan cuz she's the only one that smokes them in the entirety of New York City. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that for one second. Uh so he runs after her. I guess he knows what direction she's going by the cigarette. I don't know how, but she does. He does. And he catches up with her and he's following her and she's driving so slow and he comments on it. And then some people behind the flash, it's a couple they're talking about like this guy must be a marathon runner but i've trailed him five miles and he isn't tired and his wife says maybe maybe that last drink was too much for us like they're like they have drank drank themselves silly joan and theo arrive at the cabin and so does the flash and uh joan opens the like just busts the door open and she's got a gun and it's pointed at gall and his associate but gall also has a gun he pulls it out and he says not so fast my pretty one and then the flash comes in and says i'm not very pretty if you meant me and he punches him in the face then they capture him and they send them off to jail and that is the end pretty pretty incoherent of a story a lot of loose ends in my opinion uh, not as good as the first one, so let's just let's just leave it at that. But some good comical stuff in there from the Flash, running, doing silly, high-speed pranks, and like the Flash, let's race on to our next story. Uh, Hawkman, second story of Flash Comics number two, uh, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Dennis Neville. And this Hawkman story starts out with. Uh, buildings of New York. It says heart of the city. I, I would assume New York. Everyone's in New York at this point, except for Superman. Superman has Metropolis, but everybody else is just in New York. A bunch of the buildings in this city, New York, uh, just start crumbling, just start collapsing. Hawkman is conveniently high, high above the catastrophe, flying like he do, and he sees Shiera, uh, Shiera, his his beloved, and he he flies down to grab her and rescue her from safety her alone not anybody else anybody else you should have you should have been in love with hawkman and he would have saved you he takes her home to his weapon room his favorite room in his house and he changes out of his hawkman guys into carter hall and i like that the comic has to tell us carter hall parentheses the hawkman parentheses emerges uh, so he asks he asks shiera what caused the earthquake and she is actually a wealth of knowledge uh, weirdly, and it's quite confusing that she is. It's a, na- a man named Alexander. Carter Hall says, Alexander? How did you know? And Shiara says, you said you wouldn't mix in trouble again if we got married. And Carter says, we're engaged, darling, but not married yet, which means he can get into trouble if he wants. He can do Hawkman stuff until they're married, I guess. Uh, which is, that's information. They're now engaged. Uh, I believe it, it will. they will be the first superhero couple uh to exist uh because i believe it takes a while for superman and lois to get together batman of course just has a string of girlfriends and fiancés shira does eventually you know cave and tell the story uh, a great physicist calling himself alexander the great haha uh is out to conquer the entire globe just like the original one he just wants to be just like him and he invented a machine that increases an object's weight 1,000 times. And so that's what was happening to those buildings. They were getting 1,000 times heavier and collapsing under their own weight. So that's very cool. That's a very cool ray. And he's going to do it to all seaboard cities unless the government pays him off. 
and he intends to start in America. He wants Alexander's old empire, so that would be the Mediterranean area, and also a modern one, which would be America. And his campaign of terror begins tonight. And Carter, like the rest of us, would love to know how Shiera knows all this stuff. And it's quite simple, actually, and we are, we're all silly for not knowing. It's because he is, Alexander has invited them to dinner tonight. Yep. They're going to dinner with the bad guy. Um, so that's weird already in the first place. And Carter agrees. He says, what? Uh, spelled W-A-A-T with an exclamation point. They're going to call it 10. 10 for dinner? 10 p.m.? Jesus. That's a late dinner. I would, I would have eaten like three hours before. Jeez. They drive there and Carter uh, feels like they're going into a trap. And yes, Carter, obviously. But Shiera brought his hawk stuff, his hawkman stuff, just in case because she thought maybe he would feel better if he had that stuff. So he's got that stuff in the car. And they're greeted by a bald man with a very large head. I think that's to imply that he has a lot of brains and is very smart. So he says, you arrived on time. And then, weirdly, Hawk uh, Carter says, why, yes, is there some sort of show going on? And then a very confusing response. Some might call it that. I'm hoping you will not. You are the only one I need fear, Hawkman. So A, that statement doesn't make any sense. I'm not entirely sure what it means. Uh, in regards to what Carter said, and I don't know why Carter said what he said, but the important part is that Alexander knows that Carter Hall is Hawkman. He's like, how does he know that? And Carter says, you fear me? Question mark. And Shiara says, of course, darling. Haven't I told him all about you? It's courteous to warn our enemies. And I'm like, Shiera, what is wrong with you? You're being so weird. Uh, and, and like, I thought maybe this was like a double cross. It's not. It's just Shiera being weird. She's telling our enemies everything about them. So that's weird. Uh, he then compliments Hawkman, saying he's very wise and has ancient wisdom, lost to modern generations. But Alexander says, unfortunately, I will win between the two of us. And they have dinner at, I guess, 10 o'clock at night. And then Alexander uh, wants to give him a demonstration so that he'll pay him $1 million. And I don't think Carter Hall has a million dollars. I thought the government was supposed to do it. And Carter Hall's not the government. So this is it's all weird. So they go to his laboratory. And he demonstrates his heavy weight ray on some ping pong balls in water. Uh, they're floating on top, obviously. And then they sink to the bottom. And it's difficult to pick them up. Because I guess what's a... I mean, I don't even know what a ping pong ball weighs. But I guess times a thousand, it would actually... It would weigh something. Uh, then, then, then Carter pulls a tiny wire horse out of his pocket that he just carries around, I guess. And he says, do it on this. And, and they do. Um, and, and Carter can't even lift it off the ground. It's so heavy. Oh, I misunderstood this. Sorry, everyone. I misunderstood this. Alexander didn't bring Carter here to get him to pay him a million dollars so that he would stop it's the other way around alexander brought carter hall here to show him that like he is like his machine works really well and he means business and then he'll pay him a million dollars to just like turn a blind eye this actually makes a lot more sense uh, i was very very confused about why this was happening but now it makes a lot more sense so that's good 
Uh, so he asks him if he will take the million dollars and leave him in peace. And he says, uh, if, if I don't, am I, are we allowed to leave? And he says, yeah, you're free to go and you're free to come back if you want. He's, Alexander's a very friendly guy. Uh, so they leave before they arouse suspicions, I guess. Uh, and they're driving and they stop on their way home. And Carter wants to test the ray out on uh, some of his ninth metal. Uh, to see if it, it works on it. So he sneaks back into the house, down into the laboratory, and he tests it on the ninth metal, and it doesn't work. And to explain this, Carter says, the machine multiplies the atomic energy, and my metal has no such energy in its makeup. I don't know if that's possible. Everything is made of atoms, but okay. We'll hand wave that. Comics. Uh, he then gra- he goes home and grabs some weapons, a classic trident and net combo. And he flies off back to Alexander's house. And at that moment, Alexander is warming up his big version of the machine to shoot it at New York. Uh, And it takes a while to warm up because it's so big. Uh, And Hawkman swoops down. And he he throws the net at Alexander and then has the trident to his neck. But he isn't paying attention, weirdly. Or maybe he's paying too, like he's very hyper-focused on Alexander. And he doesn't see him grab a gun and shoot him. And... (laughs) This is very funny. When Carter gets shot, or when Hawkman gets shot, because he's Hawkman right now, he says, silly of me. <laughs> he's so calm about being shot. Uh, I, I wish we all could be so calm when we get shot. Uh, I, I would cry like a little baby. and Maybe pass out? I don't know. I've never been shot. So Alexander then drags Hawk, Hawkman's unconscious and bleeding body downstairs to his smaller version of his machine and he puts the ray on him and makes him 1000 times heavier and he says uh he'll make him so heavy that he can't lift his own body and he'll starve he's alexander does the slow method of killing your enemies which is starve them to death hardcore shira is worried so she drives up to alexander's house because carter said it would be like 30 minutes in and out quick adventure but it's been an hour and she's worried because she's shira and she loves him uh, she gets into the house and she hears the machine humming and she goes down to the laboratory and finds Hawkman and she says, don't move. Don't let the ray get in your eyes. It's on his whole body. I don't know why like opening his eyes and looking in the ray would, it makes it, it makes each individual part. So just right now, just his skin is a thousand times heavier. Everything else weighs the same. But if it sees his eyeballs, oh, his eyeballs will get a thousand times heavier and they will plunge through his brain and kill him. Hmm. Okay then. Um, that was all me. She didn't say that. That would be way too gruesome for this comic. So now she turns off the machine and off Carter goes. Uh, and he says, keep below. This is my party. And she calls him a selfish thing. She's like, just wait until I get my own wings and Hawk mask. Then you'll be in for it. Hawkman gets to jump on Alexander, gets the trident to his neck again. But this time he just stabs it right in, kills him, uh, kills him to death. And then smashes the big machine uh, so that no one else can use it. And then takes the small machine for his own personal collection as, I guess, like a little keepsake. Like Batman has this big giant penny in T-Rex. They get back to Carter's house. And he says, how about finishing our cocktails? And and Shira says, no, Carter, come and eat your breakfast. It's ready. So they were out all night doing Hawkman stuff. And that's the end. Pretty good, pretty pretty good, I guess, kind of confusing story. Not confusing, just like little weird little idiosyncrasies 
uh, kind of similar to the Flash comic, and that would make sense. They're written by the same guy. Now let's flap on over to the third and final story of Flash comics, the shorter of the three uh, and the least superhero-y of the three at this point, Johnny Thunder, uh, written by John B. Wentworth and drawn by Stan Ashmeyer. So we last left Johnny Thunder uh, with his new powers uh, of the Thunderbolt, which basically makes anyone do whatever he says after he says, say you. Uh, and he had lost his job and and was sad about it. But he's he's recovered, and now he's driving in a car down the street, and he gets into an altercation, and a policeman rolls up. Johnny doesn't know what happened. He didn't do anything to this guy. All he said was, say you, go fly a kite. And you can see there's a guy flying a kite <laughs> along the roadside. Uh, and the policeman says, I, I don't care. You just can't park by that fire hydrant. Uh, go on, scram. And he says, and Johnny says, you go fly another kite. Uh, that's right. That's right, Johnny. A cab. Cops can't tell you what to do. Uh, and we learned a new thing about Thunderbolt, that if you resist, attempt to resist, you get kind of zapped in the head. Uh, so this, <laughs> this policeman says, yeah, question mark, like he's questioning what Johnny just told him. Uh, and then he gets struck in the head with like this lightning bolt, and then he's flying a kite, and he's like, oh, we're having fun. The two, us two cops are having fun. Then Johnny's continuing to drive down the road, and he sees this sort of group of people, and uh, this guy comes up to him and asks him what this sort of hubbub is all about. And Johnny says, search me. And so the guy attempts to search him. Uh, we then see the inside of this sort of scuffle that's going on. And there's this large bald man with a striped turtleneck and a suit coat on. And he's punching a guy for and just just really being a big jerk for no reason. He's picking on this woman. And Johnny comes up and says, what's the idea of picking on a nice girl? And the guy says, I just don't like women. That's the idea. And hey, own your misogyny. That's the first part of getting to be not a misogynist. Okay, guy? Good good for you. Own up. Own up to your misogynistic traits. And then Johnny, you know, they're talking back and forth. They're like, you get out of here. Uh, or are you going to make me? And uh, Johnny says, yeah, uh, I am. And this woman, meanwhile, is trying to stop Johnny. She's like holding on to him, holding him back. And she gets in front of a punch from the big bald man. And Johnny says, say you, when I hit you, you won't stop bouncing till you wind up in a hospital bed. And he punches him right in the gut. And then he just starts bouncing down the street and bouncing really high bounces, too. Like, we're talking, like, up to second-story window bounces. Uh, this is going to hurt very, very badly. He's bouncing and bouncing and bouncing and bounces through a hospital window into a hospital bed. And he is all bruised and battered. Then uh, he's trying to talk to this woman, but this man keeps bothering him, trying to talk to him, and tells him that he's a fight manager, and Johnny says, uh, I've got to get this girl to a hospital. Call me an ambulance, will you? And this guy says, you're an ambulance. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Uh, it's not, but it is. It's stupid, yeah, but it's, it's, it's funny. Then this guy explains, like, he's a famous fight manager. His name's uh, Mike Trainer, and he wants Johnny to sign this contract and they won't let Johnny get a word in edgewise. And he signs the contract and then he tells them that he's never fought anyone his entire life. And so then they're like, Oh, nice. We're going to do this. Like, you know, this, this rookie, you know, novice going against going up against the suicide kid. Who's apparently this really good fighter. And then the, this woman who is Daisy darling, she never gets a name, but, but it is, it's Daisy darling. 
she wakes up and she has very important questions for for Johnny. She asks him, who are you and where do you work? The only two things she needs to know about him. And uh, he, you know, tries to tell her his name. But this these two guys, like this fight manager and his press agent, just will not leave him alone. And so then he says, say you all go away now, scat. And they try to they try to resist and they all get zapped in the head with lightning bolt or thunderbolt. Sorry. Uh, then, you know, it's 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 weeks, weeks and weeks later, uh, the press for Johnny fighting his first ever fight against um, a guy who could challenge for the heavyweight title uh, is, is causing big buzz. And it's the night of the fight. And it's, you know, Johnny gets in there and this guy is huge. Uh, Johnny is also he has quite the he has quite the body. His his uh, his chest is all abs. Uh, it goes it's abs all the way to the top, abs all the way down. So weird, weird body, Johnny. So he's in the fight and it's not going well. He's getting beaten up because this guy's like, you know, like probably got like 100 pounds on him and a foot taller than him. So he's punching him and punching him. And the the referee comes in because, you know, in boxing, they don't like just one guy just standing there getting punched repeatedly, repeatedly. You know, you can't do something like that. Uh, there has to be it has to be a dance. You know, it's the it's the sweet science, the beautiful science. And and Johnny says, say you can't you do something about this? I'm tired of it already. Do something to get me out of this mess. And the ref just s- stays there, just stays there standing uh, so that the guy can't punch him. And the suicide kid says, come out here and fight. You flash in the pan. I'll moiter you like he's Bugs Bunny. Uh, and. Johnny says, I'm staying where I am. You go fall on your face and count to 10 and we'll call everything square. So the suicide kid lays down and counts to 10, counting himself out. And Johnny wins. So now he has to fight the, the heavyweight champion next issue. Um, so yeah, a funny little goofy Johnny Thunder story. Uh, but that's that's a, it's nice to have a little levity in, in all these like grim, dark superhero tro- stories. No, I'm just kidding. These are the exact opposite of grim, dark. That uh, does it for Flash Comics number two, uh, building building a mythos of the Flash Comics stable of heroes. Let's now move on to Action Comics number 21, released December 27th, 1939, with a cover date of February 1940. No debuts or anything like that, Superman Zatara. Uh, and let's get into the Superman story first, uh, written by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster as per usual. Uh, so the super, this Superman story starts out with Clark Kent walking to his job at the Daily Star, and um, a building collapses, and he pushes all of the uh, pedestrians out of the way, and it falls on top of him, and he cl- climbs out of the rubble, and we get another example of what I'm calling Sch- Schrodinger's secret identity. If Clark Kent doesn't talk about his secret identity, or if he doesn't worry about his secret identity, then no one else can actually figure it out. So a building collapsed on him, and he crawled out like it was nothing. He was unharmed, and he says, of course they don't suspect that I'm Superman and cannot be injured by a mere explosion. So because he doesn't worry about it, it doesn't happen. But he's brought into for first aid, quote-unquote, by this young scientist named Curtis, Terry Curtis, and he was the one who caused the explosion accidentally. He is experimenting with atomic energy, harnessing atomic energy, the stuff 
that ninth metal has none of. So I hope he's not working with ninth metal. He's on like the point of discovering um, a weapon that could destroy any matter it was leveled at. Why? Hey guy. Hey Terry. Why? Why would that need to be invented? Clark writes up the story about the building collapsing. And he gets it on the front page because he's Clark Kent. And we uh, change view to the newly uh, female Ultra Humanite. Uh, who, if you remember from last issue, got her body swapped with... Uh, or he. See, they, they start referring to the Ultra Humanite as a woman. They call her her and, and stuff, which is very interesting. Uh, because, I mean, like five issues ago... Not even like three issues ago, it was a, he was a guy, and, and now, and that's cool. That's really nice of them to just to use the correct pronouns for Ultra Humanite. The Ultra Humanite is sitting in her bedroom or something, and she's reading the Daily Star, her favorite newspaper, probably. Uh, well, actually, she doesn't know that Clark Kent is Superman, so never mind. No reason for that to be her favorite newspaper, and she reads Clark's article. Uh, about the atomic disintegrator that Terry Curtis is developing. Why would you write that? Also, why would this not be... It. I think this might be illegal, what he's doing. I think it might be illegal to be splitting atoms in your apartment. Um, but So she's now interested in the atomic disintegrator. So that evening, uh, Terry Curtis is taking a stroll through the park, and he comes upon this woman, the ultra-humanite, and she is trying to get this cat out of this fence. It's stuck. And Terry helps free it. And they sit on a bench for half an hour and they're talking and they're getting along and they're getting to know each other. Love is forming, maybe? Maybe. And Ultra Humanite is very interested in, in Terry's work. Uh, and he says he'll tell her more about it uh, tomorrow night. Same place, same time. Ultra Humanite has other plans. The next evening, Clark calls calls on Terry Curtis for a visit and says, Oh, your experiments are going better? That's good. Uh, why do you suddenly care about your appearance so much? And he says, Because I've met a woman who looks a lot like Dolores Winter, the actress, and I'm in love. Clark thinks nothing of that. <laughs> he thinks nothing of the fact that um, a mere issue ago, he had a run-in with Dolores Winter, and she is evil now. So Clark goes back to his house to read or something uh and terry is doing some more experiments and in comes the ultra humanite and terry curtis is like how did you know where i live and she says never mind the fact is that i'm here aren't you pleased and he says of course but later as dolores the ultra humanite is uh, attempting to steal a copy of curtis's plans because of course he writes down copies of his plans uh he catches her and she pulls a gun on him, and she brings in her goons, and he's loaded onto a uh, fantastic autogyro, and he's flown away. Meanwhile, uh, Clark is sitting in a car, and he thought it was weird that the woman that Curtis met looked like Dolores Winter, and he says, that might possibly be ultra-humanite. Uh, yeah, Clark. Yeah, obviously. But when he turns around and heads back to Curtis's laboratory... He finds it ransacked and deserted. And meanwhile, at the Ultra Human Knight's stronghold, Terry Curtis is being tortured by what is called the Torture Ray. Not sure what a Torture Ray does, but a, a, what it looks like and what he calls it is a big light. Looks like a big light's just being shown in his face for hours. 
I guess that would get a, that would be torturous, you know, just like a big lamp shining directly into your face for hours. <laughs> a week passes, and Clark's just like, huh, I wonder what ever happened to, t- to Terry Curtis. Dude, you just let it sit for a week? His, his, his lab and apartment was ransacked and deserted, and you were just like, eh, this is probably fine. Meanwhile, uh, at a radio station, uh, a mysterious voice from out of nowhere started broadcasting on the radio. And it is the Ultra Humanite, of course, and she is broadcasting, and she says, $2 million is to be delivered to me or else I will destroy your city and every living soul in it. As a sample of my power, I will destroy the Wentworth Tower at 2 p.m. this afternoon. And I don't know if, like... The Ultra Humanite doesn't think that this plan is as good as her last plan because her last plan, she was asking for $5 million just for ransom. She's going to destroy an entire city and she only wants $2 million? Come on, think about the economics of scale. You know, you're destroying an entire city where people live and probably going to kill a lot of people. You should ask for more money. So Clark dons his Superman guise and rushes over to the Wentworth Tower. And at exactly 2 p.m., a plane flies by and shoots it with a ray that, I guess, disintegrates some of its atoms, and it starts to crumble to the ground. Uh, Superman gets down to ground level and holds onto the building while all the people get out and rush away, and he lets it collapse after they are, you know, safe. He then jumps after the plane. The plane tries to shoot him with the disintegrator ray, and he dodges it, jumps down to the ground, grabs a boulder, throws it at the plane, uh, and hits this disintegrator ray, but doesn't destroy the airplane. He then hops aboard the roof to get a ride back to Ultra Humanite's base. And Ultra Humanite is watching all this on a magical television that can see stuff where there's no camera. And we get to the Ultra Humanite's base, and it is a glass-sheathed city inside of a dormant volcano crater. That's pretty cool. But when the plane lands, some robot guards rush after and try to get Superman. Uh, He, of course, beats them quite quickly. And he bursts into where Ultra Humanite is holding Terry Curtis. But Terry Curtis stops him, says, stay back, and says that there is a photoelectric beam across the room. And if it's, if it's, you know, connection is broken, the disintegrator is going to destroy Metropolis. Superman says, I'm not leaving without Curtis. And the Ultra Humanite says, fine, I'll make a deal. Go steal the crown jewels from the Reynolds building and you can have Curtis. So he he, run, he jumps jumps away back to Metropolis. As Superman is rushing back to Metropolis, the Ultra Humanite, using her wireless technology, sends a message to the radio station. Again, preempts their broadcast and says that Superman is about to steal the crown jewels from the Reynolds building, so that he'll have people to go through in order to get him. So it won't be as easy. So that is exactly what happened. There is a huge group of people, uh, policemen and military, there to stop Superman. Uh, they shoot a howitzer at at him and explode a, a telephone pole that he was sitting on. And they're all trying to, you know, get him. He busts the fire hydrant, sprays him all with water. Uh, he's climbing up this building. and They drop a safe on him, and he just throws it back up like it's easy. He dangles one over the roof by his gun and uh, busts through the skylight because he can't open things. He can't go through doors or windows. He has to break things. He gets inside. They start shooting him with bullets. Uh, Oh, he has this really funny line as he's climbing up the building uh, that says, 
that says, I, I wish you'd stop shooting bullets at me. I'm ticklish, which is very, very funny. Uh, and me, so he gets inside of the building and he tears open the safe like it's nothing. And they're just constantly shooting him with like machine guns and they're, they're tear gassing him. He's just like going about his business. They try to stop him and he just busts through the wall because why not go back up through the thing you already broke? Because he's Superman, he loves to destroy property. And when he gets out, there are planes uh, that are shooting at him. Uh, but he jumps into the clouds and, and gets away from them. And he jumps back to the Ultrahumanites Volcano City. And he says, I've got the crown jewels. And she says, here's your reward. And it's a trap box full of diamond drills. But according to this, a surge of Superman's power abdominal muscles and the drills shatter. Um, so he's just got just the sickest abs in the world. Just flexes them and breaks stuff. Uh, he then tries to get shot with a sort of disintegrator gun, which is cool. Like this, it's being miniaturized. He grabs it, destroys the relay for the photoelectric cells, and attempts to capture the Ultrahumanite. She jumps out of a window. Superman destroys the atomic disintegrator and then reactivates the volcano by throwing boulders into its the heart of it, and which destroys the city and presumably kills Ultrahumanite. Maybe. Uh, and they jump back to Metropolis, and they pretend like the atomic disintegrator never happened. Uh, that is the Superman story. Pretty good. I, I, I actually really liked it. Nothing weird in this one to put a focus on. Uh, so let's move on. And we'll be moving on to the Zatara story in Action Comics number 21, written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Fred B. Gardiner. This Zatara story is titled... Zatara, the Master Magician, and the Deaths on the Moor. He is on a temporary visit. I, I like to call it a vacation, uh, or you could call it a temporary visit. Most visits are temporary. To Sussex, England. And he is talking to a Lord Ralway, uh, a friend of his. And they are, you know, they're driving through the moor, and they see a dead body up, above, up ahead. They can't stop their car in enough time, so Zatara floats the car over the body. Then they examine the body, and it seems he's been broken and beaten, but there are no marks of violence hereabouts. So either he was killed somewhere else and dropped here or, or something else mysterious. So in order to keep the evidence of the body intact, Zatara makes the body float, and they tie it to the car, and they drive it into town. All of the people there are shocked uh, to see a floating body. Uh, and they bring it to the police and the coroner, and the coroner declares that Zatara must be detained because it's, you know, it's just obvious that he killed him. That doesn't sit right with Zatara, so he goes into spirit form, leaves his body in the cell, and goes and investigates. He overhears from the police and the coroner uh, that Zatara must be kept here until the work is done. And the coroner says, yes, tell Sark to drop the body in the acid bat. So they're going to dissolve that body that Zatara brought. Uh, so Zatara flies out to Lord Ralway's house to where Tong is sleeping. And he wakens Tong and he asks Tong where Lord Ralway is. He's not here and Tong doesn't know. So they fly off. Uh, Tong is getting a piggyback ride from Zatara and that's fun. They get to they get to the county jail and Zatara has Tong fight this large man carrying the dead body in order for Zatara to get back to his body, get himself out of jail, and, and get the body, uh, the dead body. So he does that. 
And then he turns one of the jailers into, he says, like Lot, I turn you into a, a salt cellar. Isn't it Lot's wife that got turned into a pillar of salt? I mean, it's a good joke, but it, I don't think it works because it's not right. But uh, so he turns this man into a salt shaker, uh, which is just another item on the long list of Zatara killing people by turning them into things that aren't alive. I guess maybe if he turns them back, but he never turns that guy back. So that guy's just a salt seller and is dead. He turns the body into a toy statue so it's more transportable. And Tong and him go off searching for Lord Railway. He turns Tong into a bloodhound so he can sniff out Lord Railway. And uh, along their path, after they find Lord Railway's scent, they find another dead body that looks just like the first dead body. Dead, obviously dead, uh, broken and bruised, but no, you know, signs of a scuffle or anything. They then come upon this uh, spooky castle. And they think that's got to be where Lord Rawway is at the moment. Meanwhile, the coroner and the sheriff uh, have discovered that Zatara has escaped. And so they have to get to Zatara and Rawway before Zatara can get him. Because it'll ruin all of their plans. That we don't know what they are yet. They want to stop him forever with a bullet. Because he's a fugitive from justice. So back with Zatara and Tong, they come upon this house. And they're looking inside, and they see Lord Railway tied up and gagged in a chair. They untie him, get him all, get him all free, and Zatara explores the house while Tong is doing that. At the top, Zatara finds at the at the top there's a tower, and in that tower is an apiary, and with huge condors. Uh, this is a part of the plan. Apparently, they would take the victims. These birds were used to to grab the person you want to kill, and drop them from a high height, killing them. And Zatara says that this is, A, a fiendish, meth- a fiendish method of death, and one that is very, very safe and sure. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. Definitely safe and sure. Not There's no way someone might f- survive a fall from a great height. But he also sees a mask and cloaks up in this apiary, which, and he's very confused, as am I. He Out the window, he sees that his pursuers are here, and he ruins their guns by having the barrels bend at a 90-degree angle. Tong is waiting for the sheriff and the coroner at the front door, and he attempts to fight them both. He fights the sheriff and knocks him out, but the coroner has slipped past him. And he's about to chase after the coroner when a secret door opens, and a man with a mustache and a cloak and a mask shoot Tong in the shoulder. He's bleeding, he's bleeding. Uh, Zatara discovers this and transports Tong and Railway to him to keep them out of danger and uh, threatens the masked man, the sheriff, and the sheriff with pouring molten lead on them. Like he he makes vats of molten lead appear above them. Like that is that is dark. He does say they have shot Tong. They shall feel my anger. So he is he's in a bad place. Tong is his very close friend, his closest friend. But the coroner's been busy while Zatara has been saving Tong and Railway. He has released the condors and has sicked them on Zatara and his compatriots. And Zatara says the most buckwild phrase I think I've ever heard him say, and he said a lot of weird stuff. He says, my magic is of little effect on birds. Why? Why, is, why are birds unaffected by your magic? It's weird. It's a weird thing. So instead, he makes the body turn from a toy statuette back to a body. And condors are scavengers. They are birds of carrion, carrion birds. So they eat uh, dead things. 
Uh, so they attack that body instead of Zatara and his friends, and then he has Tong go and choke them all, chokes out all the birds. He then grabs the man in a mask and the sheriff and unmasks the masked man, and underneath is a man who looks identical to Lord Ralway. And it's revealed that the coroner and the sheriff had the plot to kill Ralway and put this person who looks just like him in his place uh, so that he could, through, you know, changing his will and stuff, make it so that they inherit his money or just they have control over his finances because they lost because they lost all their money gambling, so they needed to get their money back, so they were going to use the railway's money. It's a pretty flimsy plot, uh, but, I mean, it works. Uh, and that's the end. They But they've been foiled by Zatara, so so no no money for them. Uh, so yeah, so that is Action Comics number 21. Uh, now let's move on to our final issue. And that final issue will be More Fun Comics number 52, released January 2nd, 1940, cover date February 1940. We did it, y'all. We made it out of 1939. It only took us, what, five episodes to get through the year? But we did it. We're in 1940, and the world is looking grand. There's no world war going on. Let's talk about More Fun Comics number 52. We last saw it, as I said, uh, when we saw the final appearance of Dr. Occult for about a few decades uh, in, in More Fun Comics number 32. That's been 20 issues ago, uh, and now we're in More Fun Comics number 52, and we're going to be introduced to the Spectre, Jim Corrigan. This is written by Jerry Siegel and drawn by Bernard Bailey. Um, and it, it is it, it is quite different from Superman or really anything that we've seen up to this point. There's still some questions I have about about what uh, is going to take place because this first issue is solely a, a origin story of Jim Corrigan and uh, how he gets his powers um, as the Spectre or how he becomes the Spectre. So let's get into it. Uh, let's read the little first introduction blurb for the Spectre since he is a new character. Introduction, the Spectre, a supernatural being whose mission on Earth is to stamp out crime and to enforce justice with the aid of such weird powers as becoming invisible, walking through walls, and delivering death with a glance. And I will say, the Spectre is one of my favorite characters of um, DC Comics. Uh, I just find him so interesting. He's an unwilling superhero. He is he's a man who has died, uh, typically... Uh, murdered, betrayed, and he becomes God's like hand of, of wrath. And it's it's very cool, and I just think he's really cool. His costume is silly, but he is cool um, himself because his costume is just... I'll, I'll post a picture of, of it sometime on the Instagram, but uh, his costume is really, really, at least right now, really, really big underwear. So, like, we're talking, like, covering up the belly button for the waistband, and then, you know, kind of like booty short length and then no shirt shoes and then a hooded cloak and that's his that's his costume and he's white like his skin is like ashy ashy white like he's dead and a ghost but we don't see him in his full guise this this issue it's a very it's a very weird origin it kind of does make you want to come back for the next issue because it doesn't get resolved uh in this first issue it's very interesting so we first see jim corrigan talking to a friend of his and we learn that Jim is, is marrying Clarice Winston, a beautiful and wealthy young socialite. And no one knows why 
uh, a beautiful, you know, well-off girl like her would marry a lug like Jim Corrigan, a hard-boiled detective, detective who really thinks too much about his work. Uh, and his friend is, you know, ribbing him, and he takes his friend and uh, dunks him in the sink, dunks his head in the sink, getting him all wet, Ugh, all wet. Uh, and at that moment, one of Jim's uh, confidential informants, uh, otherwise known as stool pigeons or stoolies at this point, uh, has some information for him. He tells him that the Westmore warehouse is going to be robbed tonight, and they're going to steal a fortune in furs. Uh, so rather than heading to his engagement dinner, where their engagement is going to be announced, he goes to the Westmore warehouse because he is obsessed with his job. And he waits around, and a group of thugs uh, bring a box truck, and they begin stealing things. Uh, and we learn that this is Gat Benson's men uh, who are doing this, and Gat Benson is presumably a you know high-up gang leader. Jim single-handedly like takes down this group of five or so gangsters, Punching them, shooting them, all that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, this is happening. Clarice is waiting and waiting and waiting for him to come to this dinner so that they can announce an engagement and and be all happy. And her parents tell her that she shouldn't marry him. She should call it off. They They don't know why she won't reconsider. And she says, you know, he's a jerk a lot, but I love him, which is not a great sort of endorsement. And so she calls around. She calls his friend. He says that he left a long time ago. She calls the police headquarters, and she finds out that he single-handedly took down all these thugs. Uh, and he went to Lakeside Hospital for repairs, they say. So he must have gotten hurt a little bit. And she's worried that he's, you know, hurt really bad. He's not. He's fine. He is He is fine. Uh, but she is angry at him. Uh, they get in their car to drive home, and they don't see that two men are following them in a sedan. So in uh, the sedan that's following them, we learn this is Gat Benson and one of his men who are going to, you know, get back at Jim for ruining their plan to rob the Westmore warehouse. Uh, back in Jim and Clarice's car, they're talking, um, they're talking, and Clarice is giving him a piece of his mind, her mind, and uh, Jim pulls over into a side street and stops the car. Uh, and he, then he says this really, really uh, sexist thing that there's only going to be one boss in our family, and that's me, Jim Corrigan. Uh, then they kiss, and she says, Jim Corrigan, you're a tyrant, a bully, and a conceited fool, but I love you. Uh, and at that moment, Gat Benson walks up to their car, pulls a gun, and says, uh, raise him, and no tricks. And he uh, grabs them, put puts them in the back of his car, and drives them to uh, a small warehouse on the docks. Uh, they take Clarice into the other room, and they take uh, Jim, knock him out, put him in a barrel, and fill that barrel up with cement. They then take that barrel and throw it into the harbor. I guess double suffocating him. Uh, so we go. We are down at the bottom of the harbor in this barrel, and suddenly Jim Corrigan is outside of it, and he's racing up upwards into the sky and following this path of light, and he and he sees this sort of cloud it's like big cloud that he's going towards but right before he can get to it he stops in midair like in this in this sort of light in this void and he realizes that he is dead he is a, he is a dead man uh, but for some reason he's not passing through the gates to infer- the gates of an eternity and god presumably 
uh, tells him, listen, Jim Corrigan, and you will learn. Your mission on Earth is unfinished. You shall remain Earthbound, battling crime on your world with supernatural powers until all vestiges of it are gone. And Jim doesn't want to go. Jim wants eternal peace. Uh, I mean, he's I, I mean, he's not actually going to be alive again. He'll be dead. So I get it. I wouldn't want to do that either. Uh, but it's d- despite his protests, he is sent down. And he is brought back down to the bottom of the harbor. And he's just sitting there on the ground next to this barrel. And he sees his hand. And he realizes that that is his body. And he flies up out of the water and floats above it. Uh, and tests out some of his new powers. He realizes that he can fly, obviously, and he realizes that basically he can do anything mentally if he like if he puts his mind to it. So he can make himself invisible. He can fly. The final thing he can do is is walk through walls because we see this after we hear a scream, and he realizes that it's Clarice, and something is being done to her by these deadly killers. So he rushes to the warehouse and walks through the walls, and that's where it leaves us. It's a really good cliffhanger, uh, I will say. Uh, it's really, really good because we see like half his body going through the wall and then it says, you know, don't miss the further adventures of the Spectre uh, in more fun comics. It's really, it's a really, really cool and, and like weirdly dark origin story for what is considered a, a not very dark age in comics. It's the golden age. Things are, you know, resolved in one issue and the hero always kind of comes out on top, but this one, the hero is killed in the first issue, and his adventures continue after that. I think it's really, really interesting, and that's why I think it's why the Spectre is one of my favorite characters. But yeah, that's that's More Fun Comics number 52, and that is the episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We covered fewer issues in, in this one than we have in previous ones, just because there's a lot of there's a lot of them, and a lot of them have a lot of stories in them. Superman had two uh, next next Superman Superman number four has four so some of the some of the episodes are going to cover fewer issues and some are cover will cover more just depending on which ones they are uh, so hit us up on socials uh, Instagram we um, I'm, I'm posting primo panels I'm posting covers I'm posting uh, character art of the characters when we first see them uh, it's a good time it's it's really shaping up over there um, and also the the Twitter Still, I'm still, I cannot think of anything to put on the Twitter. So maybe don't even follow the Twitter. It's fine. Twitter's dying anyways, like I've said. Uh, and be sure to be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I know that's annoying and every single podcast asks you to do that. But, I mean, I, I think what we do over here is cool. I like doing it. If I'm doing it for like a handful of people, that's fine. But I, I think these first comics are pretty cool in their own way, obviously. Comics are much better now, but... Uh, yeah, I just, the more people that can, you know, listen and learn, the the better things are, I guess, maybe, you know, maybe we can learn a thing or two from these silly comics. Uh, but until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers. Uh, bye. (laughs)